<clears throat> I, I uh, welcome everybody this morning, and uh, thank you for coming. Are <laughs> we were just meeting with our first witness, um, Ken Weinstein, and as soon as he arrives, I'm going to let him go for it because uh, here he comes now through the door. So I'll, I'll formally uh, begin. Um, it's. Um, uh, let me just say that uh, Ken has to leave at 11.15. Uh, he's a really important person to have before us today. He's our dear friend and former colleague. And uh, so um, we have um, uh, decided to, uh, uh, I'm sure to great popular relief, suspend our opening statements. Uh, uh, basically, this is a, uh, we've spent, I'll be very quick, uh, we've naturally been focused uh, for the last few years on uh, the threat of infectious disease, pandemics as part of the bioterrorist threat. And um, uh, when we started in 2014, our charge was to cover the range of uh, bioterrorist threats, including infectious disease pandemics. But frankly, the one that I would have guessed, and I think Governor Ridge, because we both come from the Homeland Security uh, background uh, would be the most prominent, which was bioterrorist attacks. Also, we were concerned about accidents at laboratories, which emerges again post-COVID, particularly around the lab in Wuhan, is something uh, to worry about. But but now we return to the bioterrorist threat, which it seems to me is probably more serious than it was. Uh, in 2014 when we began. I mean, the State Department recently said that Russia and uh, North Korea definitely have uh, biological weapons programs, that the odds are great that China and Iran also do, although they say they don't. And a number of the terrorist groups either have that uh, capacity or are really working hard at it. And just to make it real, earlier this year, uh, law enforcement and authorities in Germany arrested uh, two Iranians who were there and charged them with planning to use ricin and cyanide in uh, bioterrorist attacks. So today, our focus is on biological intelligence and information sharing uh, with the uh, purpose of, of uh, trying to make sure that we don't we haven't sort of fallen asleep, or, or, or to go back to the phrase from the 9-11 Commission, failed to imagine uh, what might happen in a bioterrorist attack and what we need by way of an intelligence gathering and information sharing to, uh, uh, to, to prevent, and if God forbid it happens, to respond. So um, we got a wonderful group of witnesses, beginning with Ken Weinstein, Stein, <laughs> we had we had a big problem for years because the Hudson Institute had it by a man named Ken Weinstein, and we have Ken Weinstein. <laughs> but it's Ken Weinstein who's with us today. Went from us to be the uh, head of intelligence and analysis under secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, we can't thank you enough for being here, and it's all yours. Well, thanks so much, and appreciate the, the introduction and the warm welcome, or warm welcome back. Um, and, uh, and you know it's a banner day when you have three 
retired politicians deferring public speaking uh, <laughs> for you to speak. That's <laughs> that's a that's that's a banner day. Um, no, but I appreciate that, and I appreciate you accommodating my schedule. I've got to go. As I mentioned, I'm going up to to New York. We have a um, tradition at INA where all the new people who come on board, we bring them up to the 9/11 Memorial Museum in downtown Manhattan. We take them through the museum. We get uh, uh, we hear from a survivor, a fire a fireman or somebody else who was on the scene on 9/11, and it's all done to remind. Uh, the new people at INA, I swear the men up there actually, but to, to explain to them the origin story of INA and DHS, which is 9-11, but also to remind them that the threat was real and it still is real. So um, I appreciate your effort to do that in the bio area and just generally um, reminding us that, you know, the fact that we might not have been struck successfully in, you know, the last six months, last 12 months, last five years, doesn't mean we're not going to, you know, someone's not gonna try it soon. So groups like yourself are playing a really indispensable role in, the, in reminding the American people, but also the government. It's when you're in there, as you know, when you're in government and juggling balls, um, the, the ball you pay attention to is the one that's, that's on fire, to sort of mix my metaphors. And if something like the bio threat isn't you know, you're not reminded of it recently. It's all too easy to sort of put it in the back burner. And uh, having you uh, out there with your voices, uh, your reputations, and your knowledge of the area um, does a lot to keep it on the front burner. So thank you. Thank you. So what I thought I'd do is I'd just give a little touch um, on the bio threat and where we see it, um, and then talk generally about the threat at DA that DHS is focused on, or the air main areas of threat, and then talk a little bit about INA, because I think there's, um, it's not commonly understood what INA's role is in the intelligence enterprise. So, um, bio threat, uh, look, you, you all have written on it more authoritatively than anybody, but uh, there's a constant threat, has been a constant threat, um, and we've seen it flare up over time. Um, you know, those, the threat emanates from a number of different areas. Uh, Senator Lieberman, you just referenced, uh, referenced them. You have the fact that nation states have bio programs, some historic bio programs, some ongoing. Uh, and, um, you know, some of those are nation states that are, you know, are, are very adversarial to us, uh, the North Koreas of the world. And so we have every reason to be concerned about their use against us or our allies. Um, and then also the foreign terrorist organizations. We know that they've uh, flirted with bioweapons in the past. Um, as you, I think we've talked about in, in past meetings, Al-Qaeda, in fact, Zawahiri, who we killed just last year, uh, he oversaw the development of what was then a nascent program uh, to develop anthrax as a weapon back in like 1988, 1998, 1999. Um, and we found evidence in Afghanistan that they were trying to go forward with an anthrax program. Um, and then ISIS, uh, we know that, um, I think it was uh, Syrian forces um, captured a, an ISIS operative back in like 2014, 2015, and downloaded from his laptop, you know, thousands of documents involving chemical, but also biological weapons. Um, so we know that the foreign terrorist groups have a strong interest in trying to develop their, this capacity. Uh, but then there are some sort of new variables that are worth mentioning, and I'm sure you've been focusing on these in your meetings, but 
um, new variables that make this threat sort of even more pointed and more uh, more scary. Obviously, new technologies. Um, the, it used to be that we had some comfort that, you know, the uh, developing bioweapons, that was the kind of, you know, experts. So you had to be someone who was, you know, had a PhD to develop a, a functioning bioweapon. Um, that's not the case now. You can get a lot of the information off the internet. You can get a lot of the, the uh, components of a bioweapon, like rice and other things, off the dark web. Um, the technology itself has been has become much easier to access and is much more user friendly to people who are not experts. So, the, the the march of technology, as it has in so many areas, brings great benefits, but also brings greater risks. Another variable that I think it's worth focusing on is COVID. And the COVID example, of course, you know that that, that was a uh, we have all the pandemic aspects of that, but just in terms of what impact it had on wrongdoers who would like to possibly use a bioweapon against us. Um, and, you know, you just have, uh, if you look at some of the, the rhetoric among some of these white nationalist sort of neo-Nazi groups, um, there's, since uh, the onset of COVID, there's been a good bit of discussion about using COVID against their enemies, um, using COVID or trying to uh, enhance the spread of COVID to try to undermine society, which would then allow for the collapse of society and then give an opportunity for them to then build a new society that's consistent with their views and their principles. Um, you know, more specific white nationalist plans um, to do things like uh, put um, COVID on doorknobs of people who are, they see as their enemies, Jewish people, FBI facilities, this kind of thing. So you've seen a good bit of rhetoric like that, um, triggered by the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, you know, our ISIS has praised COVID as one of, quote, Allah's brothers, uh, as, you know, a, um, a great weapon against Western society because it killed so many Westerners. Um, so, you know, the aftermath of COVID has just reminded people that um, bioorganisms can be used as a weapon. Um, and so that's uh, sort of a a heightened realization uh, among our adversaries that we need to take into account. Another variable that's worth looking at is the Ukraine war. Um, and that's, you know, that's the obvious fact that, you know, Putin has talked about escalating the war, and we talk about whether that's going to be, you know, that he's going to resort to nuclear weaponry or whatever. But, you know, keep in mind that there's the biological opportunity. Oops. Is it not loud enough? Okay. There's you start over, please? <laughs> so, um, all right, I'll talk louder. The um, and so that there's that concern that escalation could also uh, also include uh, biological um, uh, biological weaponry, and then also there. This is more of a bank shot, maybe, but there's the the recognition right now that um, that Russia seems to be using. Um, its ability to uh, affect the flow of food around the world. And that sort of goes to the agro-terrorism threat that uh, Senator Daschle and I learned, well, he already knew a lot about it. I learned as when he and I went out to places in the Midwest and learned about the agro-terrorism threat. And um, once again, 
a higher realization of the vulnerability of our food chain will lead people to be thinking about that as a possible vector um, for uh, uh, a, a possible threat vector. So those are some of the new variables I see that we need to keep our eye on in the biospace. And I know you've got some uh, experts who are coming along later today who will speak in more detail with these things. Um, let me now broaden it out a little bit. And as, as you know, we're the Office of Intelligence Analysis. We look at all threats that DHS handles. Bio is one of them, but in fact, there's a dedicated group outside of our office that looks at WMD issues, including bio issues. But I think it's probably useful just to talk about some of the larger threat areas that bio can be related to. Um, first, and, and these are the things that the Secretary, Deputy Secretary, and leadership of DHS are focused on um, and uh, are talking about publicly quite a bit. Um, but the threats, it is interesting, and we talked about this a little bit today. I left government in 2009 after 21 years and then just came back in last year. And it's, it's been sort of surprising how much the threat landscape has changed, how the threats that we were focused on back then, obviously nation states, nation state adversaries were threats, drug cartels were threats, foreign terrorist organizations were threats, but we were intensely focused on Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the foreign terrorism threat. That threat picture has diversified and deepened in many ways. And so just take terrorism, for example. Um, when I stepped out of government on January 20th, Inauguration Day of 2009, the primary terrorism threat, the most lethal, most dangerous terrorism threat was foreign terrorist organizations, foreign terrorism. Uh, today, as you hear from Chris Ray and Ali Mayorkas and Avril Haines, the most deadly, persistent terrorism threat that we deal with now is domestic violent extremism, domestic terrorism. That is a completely different ballgame in a lot of ways as a, in terms of doing intelligence work against it than foreign terrorists. Um, uh, the foreign terrorism threat is. It's, um, it is very fraught because it, is, it requires focus internally as opposed to externally, where constitutional protections are much more, um, need to be much more uh, focused on. Um, and it also, it is, um, intertwined with domestic politics and therefore raises First Amendment issues. So it's a very difficult, um, very difficult target to deal with and um, in some ways therefore more challenging uh, in a lot of ways than foreign terrorist target. So that's the terrorism space, other issues that are now out there that we didn't deal with before back in 2009, fentanyl. And um, as you know, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Ali Marcus, has been focusing on fentanyl and been very um, working closely with the rest of the interagency mm -hmm. to really mount an all-out assault on the flow of fentanyl in the United States. Um, it kills people like no other drug in the past. The number of overdoses is just astonishing, upwards of 70-some thousand, 80,000 last year, and uh, with you know, predictions of more this year. Uh, and it's um, unbelievably potent and deadly. Uh, and the really tragic thing is so many people, often young kids, take pills that they don't realize uh, are dangerous and can kill them because so, such a small amount of fentanyl can kill somebody. So that's an area of focus. And the last area that I really want to uh, focus on is China. And China is, um, in fact, the, the, the secretary announced in his 20th anniversary speech for DHS that there is, uh, we're going to do a China sprint to really try to intensify our work on China. But China is taking a whole of government 
undertaking or effort against the United States to try to undermine our system, our democracy, and our economy. I mean, that's that's the the realization that we we're now at. Whether it's technology theft, whether it's transnational repression, where they're taking overt efforts within the, our country to try to persecute, uh, oppress people that they see as their adversaries or dissidents from overseas, uh, whether it's the insinuation of agents into local police departments in order to get intelligence from those local police departments and use the authorities of those police departments against people they see as their adversaries. Um, it's, as I say, a whole of government effort to try to undermine us. And um, that is, I see that as being an existential threat of a type that we, we didn't deal with before. So the threat picture has changed a good bit. In terms of INA, and I'll wind up in a minute now, um, we are, as I said at the outset, we have the CWMD office that works the bio-ticket and the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but we, we work with them, obviously, because the intelligence that we either receive or generate, receive from the intelligence community or generate ourselves, focuses on our adversaries and what they plan to do with us, uh, against us, whether it's by cyber means, by kinetic means, by bio means. Um, so we are focused on that threat. But I think it's important to just step back for a second and explain what it is that INA does. Um, and the reason for that is because it's not inherently clear what INA's role is within the intelligence community. And I'm telling you, Senator Lieberman, but you would know this because you were one of the architects of the post 9-11 uh, architecture, including DHS. But INA was designed initially and still exists for the primary purpose of being the intelligence bridge between the state, local, territorial, tribal, and private sector uh, partners around the country. The bridge between them, the intelligence community of the federal government, federal law enforcement like um, ICE and FBI, and all the components of DHS. And that bridge was one that didn't exist, at least didn't really exist in any substantial way on 9-11. One of the, the lessons of 9-11 was you had information resident out in the cities about the 9-11 operatives, and then you had uh, people in the intelligence community who knew something about them, and then you had people in the FBI who knew something about them, but all those dots were not connected. And to connect those dots, you need to have regular sort of constant and institutionalized communication between this, those partners, the state and local partners, and the federal government. That's our job, to establish that. And we establish that in a number of ways. One, we have fusion centers that we don't, we don't own the fusion centers, but there are 80 fusion centers around the country. We have people there working with the state and local authorities to make sure that when there's homeland security intelligence being generated on the field, that gets into the intelligence bloodstream back to DHS and to the intelligence community. One example is fentanyl. Fentanyl is a national security threat, as I said. Clear, you know, national security threat. A lot of in intelligence is generated by state and local police departments about the fentanyl trade coming across the southwest border and otherwise. That intelligence needs to be teamed up with the intelligence the intelligence community is generating, the FBI is generating, about what the cartels are doing around the world, about the precursors coming over from China, for example, and getting that information all pooled together, getting products, intelligence products out that highlight the threat, anticipate where it's migrating, that kind of thing. That is the stuff of what DHS INA does, does it through the 
our participation in the fusion centers. We do it through having the Homeland Security Intelligence Network, which is the network that INA has built with all our state and local partners in which we have um, intelligence that is generated by us, generated by the other members of the intelligence community, and generated by our partners out in the field. And that information gets uh, disseminated around to all the partners throughout the country. In fact, uh, up until recently, it was you had to go on a terminal, but now we actually have it on an app so that a police officer or a border patrol agent can actually be in their squad car and look at it. So those are the means that we are sort of establishing that bridge. And I, I lay that out because it's, um, I think it's important that we realize and we recognize how important that function is. Because we have to, um, we have to go back to 9-11 to remember the lessons of 9-11 that then informed the organizations that you helped to shape, one of which is DHS and INA, and remember that that function was, you know, that the need for that function was laid bare by 9-11. We needed it on 9-11, we needed it as much now, and we need it now not just in the terrorism space, we need it in the fentanyl space, we need it, you know, in the transnational repression space, and we need it in the biospace. So I guess I will um, stand down and I'll defer to you now, um, but I, I, I hope that gives you sort of a little understanding of how we see the bio threat at DHS and then how we're structured to meet it. Uh, that was great, Ken. Thank you. Great uh, beginning. Um, thanks for what you said about I, INA, because, uh, you know, uh, when you're in, as my colleagues, in, in the legislative activity, you could pass a law, you're never quite sure what's going to happen with it. This a, forgive this reference from another world, but in a, a favorite uh, Broadway musical called The Fantastics, which goes on and on, there's a line in one of the songs that says, plant a radish, get a radish, not a Brussels sprout. So sometimes legislators plant a radish and suddenly they get a Brussels sprout. I just want to tell you how uh, uh, reassuring it is to me that uh, what you're doing today, uh, a couple of decades later, is exactly what, what uh, I didn't do it myself, I mean, with Senator Collins, Congressman Hoekstra, Congressman Harmon, and a lot of others, uh, what we hoped for from INA. And of course, the uh, striking thing is that if you had said the, words, the word fentanyl to us, we, we wouldn't know what you were talking about. So uh, thank you. In light of uh, uh, the time, I'm just going to ask one question and bring it right up to uh, today. Um, talk about things that uh, all three of us here and Senator Daschle, uh, et cetera, were involved in uh, the uh, passage of what is known as Section 702, which is up for renewal in Congress and uh, um, appears to me to be, be more controversial than it was when we uh, uh, first adopted it. So I wanted to ask you if you would just take a minute or two to, um, uh, if you ask the people across the country, including probably a lot of members of Congress, what's 702? Nobody would know, or very few would. So tell us about 702 and um, why, as I, I know you do, you think it's important to renew it <clears throat> and then getting to the uh, focus of, of this meeting today, why you think it's important to have 702 to help protect us from the bioterrorist threat? Well, thanks. Um, 
appreciate that question. First, I never thought I'd be so happy to be called a radish in my life, but <laughs> I'll take it as a compliment. Thanks for that question. So just uh, first, I, I'm not, as, as an intelligence agency, we do not use 702. We don't have covert means of collection at our disposal, but we're consumers of it in right. that we get intelligence products that are informed by intelligence that's generated by 702 surveillance. Um, but 702 was passed in, I think, the summer of 2008, and it was the FISA Amendments Act. So it was the reform or the amendment of the original Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that was passed in 1978 that put in place a process by which the intelligence community would go to the FISA court to get approval to do certain electronic surveillances, wiretaps back then, um, for national security purposes. So that was an act that was passed in 1978. Since 1978, you had the advent of the internet, you had fiber optic cabling around the world, and it completely changed the structure of communications that FISA was intended to govern. That, without getting into all the details, the upshot was that post 9-11, especially when there was an expansion of number of of targets, terrorist targets, foreign terrorist targets that um, the government wanted to surveil for counterterrorism purposes, you had this clunky structure where you had to go and put a 50-page document together, go to the FISA court, as though it was you were actually trying to surveil somebody in the United States, a U.S. person. But it was often somebody who was outside the United States, was not a U.S. person, often communicating with somebody else outside the United States, where the same interests, constitutional concerns, didn't apply. So. There was an effort post 9-11 to reform or amend the FISA Amendments Act. That passed in 2008, and it created what is now is named by the, the section, the number of the section, which is 702. It created this authority by which if a person, if the target of the legitimate target of surveillance, in other words, is being surveilled because that person is, um, you know, has has come up in an investigation involving national security concerns. If that person is a non-U.S. person and is reasonably believed to be outside the United States, you don't have to go through the full elaborate FISA court process. There is a streamlined process that doesn't require going to the court with lots of different uh, limitations and oversight, et cetera. That passed in 2008 um, and then had to be reauthorized. It's been reauthorized two or three times since. It now, as you point out, um, is up for reauthorization this year, and there's a good bit of debate about it. And there should be a good bit of debate about it. You know, that at the end of the day, strong national security um, authorities like FISA, like the uh, 702, need to be scrutinized and looked at it from all perspectives. The effectiveness in terms of generating national security intelligence, but also making sure that they appropriately protect privacy, safeguards are in place to you know, prevent the, the misuse of the authority and to protect the data that's collected by that authority, right? So we, we should have that debate, and there's a healthy one going on right now. But the concern is that some have called for 702 not to be reauthorized. And this is where it becomes, um, it becomes very uh, dangerous for national security in the sense that if you look at the amount of intelligence that the government gets against the most critical threats that we're facing, a huge percentage of it comes from 702 collection, comes from emails, communications that are intercepted by 702. 
a lot of the intelligence about the cartels and fentanyl that you alluded to that is killing so many Americans, uh, a good bit of intelligence about China and its malicious plans against the United States, against the homeland, um, foreign terrorist organizations. 702 is incredibly useful against foreign terrorist organizations. And I can't remember the exact number, but well over, I think, 50% or more of the information that's in the president's daily brief every morning is sourced back to 702, which shows you how vital that is as a source of intelligence. In terms of the bio threat, um, once again, this is focused on non-US persons outside the United States. I, as I just alluded to, there is relatively current or recent information about ISIS and other foreign terrorist organizations flirting with the idea of bio, using bioweapons. Um, we have nation states with biological capabilities. That is the, 702 is gonna be the best, most immediate means of getting the intelligence about what the intentions of those adversaries might be to try to prevent that, you know, those intentions from becoming a reality, the reality of an attack against us with a bioweapon. So it's, um, in my mind, absolutely critical that we should have the debate. Congress should look at that authority very carefully, should seriously weigh any different calibrations of the authority and oversight for the authority. But at the end of the day, we absolutely need that uh, capability. Uh, thanks, Ken. That was uh, uh, both a uh, great explanation and a great uh, argument for why it should be renewed. Certainly, I agree with you. Am I right that Governor Ridge was not able to be with us today? I think I am. Um, Representative Greenwood. Thank you. Uh, the fusion centers you referenced, uh, I think there are 79 fusion centers, something like that. Um, they have, as I understand, it, they have different capacities because they they have their limitations as there are anywhere in government on resources, the kind of people you can hire, and so forth. Um, I'd like your thoughts if you have any. Um, I know you have plenty of thoughts, but uh, if you have thoughts on this <laughs> subject, um, as to uh, whose responsibility is it to strengthen those the, those fusion centers? Is that state and local and, and territorial and tribal? Um, uh, responsibility, does the federal government provide, I don't know this, the federal government provide resources, are there, do you have ideas about how they can strengthen the, the, those fusion centers? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question. The, look, the fusion centers um, all around the country, I've visited a number of them, I'm gonna keep visiting uh, more. And the saying is, um, and I heard this when I walked in and it's, it's been borne out by my visits. If you've seen one fusion center, you've seen one fusion center, mm -hmm. because they're all different. And DHS doesn't own them, right? The, they're, the control is shared among state and locals. And so they're all different in the way they're oriented, in the way they're staffed, in the, the areas of threat that they focus on. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, sort of like how they, they are controlled, but also how they should be controlled, right? Because that's part of the beauty of them, because every region has different needs, different threats, right? Um, and each, every partner is looking at that threat differently. So we, um, we have now, thanks to Congress, we now have the staffing to have somebody in every one of the, the fusion centers. I think we were, there were seven or eight that we didn't have manned um, by a DHS person. Um, and with resources and person power, we, you know, we, we are supporting the fusion centers. We also work very closely with Mike Senna and the head of the National Association, Fusion Center Association, which is, they do a very good job of sort of spreading best practices among the fusion centers. 
I will say this, though, that um, we're taking a hard look at our field operations. I mean, we're doing a number of things. I won't bore you with all the details, but within INA, we're sort of stepping back and looking at our operations, whether it's collection, how we're doing collection, and how we're making sure that there's, you know, that collection is closely supervised and compliance is in place and civil liberties are protected, doing the same in, in analysis to make sure that we're prioritizing the areas that we're focusing our analysis on. Uh, against the threats that we can have the greatest impact on. Another area that we're looking at is our field operations to make sure that we're adding the most value to the field. But there is a balance to be struck between, you know, sort of having a, I guess one could have a desire for like a standard fusion center across the country that has a certain number of, certain selection of assets and capabilities and then having field uh, fusion centers that are sort of tailored to the, the needs of their particular region. And uh, right now, I think you'd find that it's more the latter than the former. And the more I go to these fusion centers, the more I recognize the wisdom of that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jim. Um, next, uh, uh, virtually, but with us, uh, Dr. Shalala. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ken. I only have a quick question. Uh, immigration services in um, DHS are being pushed to the brink. What What's your relationship with them? Um, they're understaffed. They're uh, being pressured to let more people in. Um, uh, could you talk a little about uh, that relationship and your concerns? Look, the um, you know we're the intelligence arm of DHS, and so the, in terms of relationship with um, CSIS, um, you know, we, they're not necessarily a, a strong consumer of intelligence because they're not an enforcement arm of the department. So we don't, we don't have an operational sort of relationship on a regular basis per se. Our, our sort of intelligence operational relationship is more with, you know, HSI, ICE, CBP, et cetera. I don't know. I don't, I'm not trying to duck the question. It's just that we don't. Um, there's there's less of a need for for them to be a consumer of our intelligence. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Donna. Uh, Senator Tom Daschle. And thank you for all of your good work and leadership and your presentation today. It's so informative. I I wanted to just follow up a little bit on your comment about technology. AI has been so much in the news in recent months and. Some people have equated it with the development of nuclear weapons and the, the the popular movie that's out right now and how historic it is. I'm just wondering just how much AI complicates our challenge and what effect it's having on your intelligence gathering uh, aspects of this and how you how you assess the challenges presented to us by AI. That, that's a great question. Look, it's and I was going to mention that in my comments. Decided I just had to slim things down. So um, the, the secretary actually, referring back to the speech that he gave on the 20th anniversary of DHS, he set up an AI task force, uh, emerging technology AI task force, to look at two things, sort of both sides of the coin. One is how AI and emerging technology can be used by us, by DHS, to assist us in our efforts to protect the homeland but also how our adversaries are using it. And just as I said earlier, like all technologies, there's the beneficial and the dangerous side of a new technology. And 
to start with how we can use it, and this is what this task force is looking at, we, um, you know, at INA, for example, AI would makes it tremendously easier to scan through large batches of information. So if we're looking for people who are coming in, let's say, you know, applying for visas or whatever that we think might have malicious intent, and there might be patterns in the information that would uh, identify those people as having malicious intent to maybe steal our technology, let's say, AI can help us tremendously in doing that analysis because we don't have to do it by hand. And in fact, we have a request up on the Hill to get funding for that very purpose, to have an AI platform to help us uh, in that regard. So that's just on the, on the Intel side. Obviously, all the enforcement agencies can use AI in different ways to expedite and facilitate their mission. But in terms of use of AI against us, I mean, deep fakes, you know all the, the ways that deep fakes can be used and uh, are used for fraud schemes and other things. Our adversaries can now examine large data sets for vulnerabilities in us in the same ways that we can do to them. So um, AI is a game changer. Um, and it's, uh, and I've, I've heard those same sort of um, statements about how this is going to change technology more. And I think the president might have said something along these lines recently. Um, you know, greater change than the advent of the nuclear technology or whatever it was. Um, I agree. The, the more I see, I mean, just getting on chat GPT and seeing what uh, it's capable of and then reading about the ramifications of that, you know, screenwriters and actors concerned that they're never, they're not going to be needed anymore because AI is going to take their place. It's going to change our lives. So good question and certainly something to be keeping an eye on. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Congressman Upton. Well, thanks. Uh, appreciate your service uh, always. You know, as one, as all of us experienced 9-11, especially if we were here and that morning I drove through the Pentagon parking lot, I was then chairman of the telco uh, subcommittee, and we had a, a hearing or a, a meeting uh, on 9-1-1, but that was on the phone call, 9-1-1, not 9-11. Um, we all quickly came to the uh, resolution that we ought to make sure that every tool is in the toolbox because the terrorists just had to be lucky one day, and we had to be lucky virtually every day. Uh, but I'd be I'd be interested in e what international cooperation uh, there is. I mean, we t learned a little bit about uh, what went on with Germany and, and the Ricin, uh earlier this year. But how, how are we intermingling our our resources? Uh, is there something like five eyes uh, with the with the international community as it relates to, to bioterrorism, how can we help? What what can we do to, to help promote that? Because we know that not only is the threat here domestically, but we still have the international threat, obviously, as well. So that's that's a, obviously a very important dimension of what I alluded to earlier, which is sort of the construct of the post-9-11 national security apparatus, which is the cooperation with our foreign partners. And um, and I saw that you know in real time after 9/11, where you uh, th that the closeness developed between us and foreign services and foreign governments who all you know shared the desire to to uh, prevent another 9/11. And 
Um, obviously, that predated that kind of cooperation predated 9/11, but I think it really ramped up post 9/11 in the terrorism context, and also in specifically in the bioterrorism context. So I saw that up until I left government. Now I've come back in, and I see that it, that relationship, the operational relationship between us, and I'm not talking about INA specifically, but our intelligence community and foreign partners is only deepened in the years I was out of government, um, deepened and become more regularized. Uh, can't speak exactly to like specifically what is going on in the bioterrorism space. My sense though is that that is deepened and, and if you were to, um, I'm sure if you went back and sort of deconstructed what happened after the, the arrest in Germany and the interaction between the German authorities and our intelligence community and the sharing of intelligence, I'm sure it would be a stronger, more robust back and forth than you would have seen 20 years ago. So my sense is that um, it's, it's, um, it's refined and strengthened, but once again, the more you can keep a focus on it, when you ask what you can do, the more you can keep a focus on it, both for our government and for our, the governments of our foreign partners, um, the better. Uh, thanks, Rhett. <clears throat> uh, Ken, I know you're in a hurry, but we're starting a new policy for the commission at this meeting to finally give these incredibly talented, experienced people an opportunity systematically to ask questions. So to begin this transformational initiative, uh, you're lucky enough to be asked the question by Scooter Libby. Finally, transformation. <laughs> um, first of all, I want to congratulate America on enticing you back into government, uh, both for your <laughs> principles and the breadth of your experience. And you've helpfully brought to our attention fentanyl, with all the deaths that brings, COVID, with all the consequences that brought, and raised for us the possibility of foreign national intelligence agencies working on the possibility of a bio threat here. So I wonder if drawing on all that experience, if you could either now or later say, if we have an attack five years from now that has COVID-like consequences, what would we wish we had done today to minimize the damages for that event. That's what this commission really is mm -hmm. all about. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have current thoughts, but if not in the future, we could certainly use your insights based on your access to information that we don't have. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll end up repeating myself a little bit, that, but that's really the question we have to pose to ourselves. We have to constantly, we have to constantly put ourselves on September 10th, just to use 9-11 as the frame of reference for my generation. And it would be, December 6th in my parents' generation, right? We have to put ourselves on September 10th and then say, what should we have been thinking about then in order to prevent September 11th, right? And, you know, you raise the points. It's um, in terms of sort of keeping the bio threat in our national consciousness and our government's, you know, the forefront of our government's mind that, you know, just because we haven't been struck recently with a bio threat, a bio, bio weapon, that's out there and there are potentially, depending on the circumstances, potentially catastrophic you know, circum, um, consequences. So that the interagencies continue to be focused on it. The White House continues to be focused on it. DHS continues to look at it. Um, and we now have a new head of our 
uh, CWMD office, uh, Mary Ellen Callahan, very impressive, um, longtime DHS person and, and experience elsewhere, both in the private and public sector. And I think she's going to be great for that office. Um, that's an opportunity uh, with her stepping in, I think, just as there always is when there's a new person. It's an opportunity to try to uh, intensify the focus on that area. But also, going back to what Senator Lieberman said, making sure we have the tools to find out what the designs of that person or that party are who will launch that attack that you're talking about in the future. And if we don't have the tools like 702 to do that, we might be blind to the in indications of that coming attack that would have allowed us to protect, to prevent it. So um, we should debate uh, uh, national security authorities that we have. We should make sure to scrutinize them to make sure they, they, they carefully observe the values and the constitutional protections that are so important to our democracy. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that we need those authorities because there are bad people out there who want to do really bad things like launch bioweapons against us. So, and if I, I'll think about more specifics and get back to you. Thank, <clears throat> thanks, Scooter. Thanks, Ken. Uh, your your uh, remarks have been really uh, helpful to us. Uh, thanks for your service and uh, travel safely and successfully to New York today. We'll okay. keep in touch. Thank you. It's been Take an honor care. to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, we'll go to the uh, second uh, panel now as to witnesses, uh, Ms. Mayo and Dr. Burnett to come to the table, and I turn the gavel in the spirit of bipartisanship that prevails uniquely on this commission to Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. So I'll introduce and invite to the table our two uh, next panelists. They are Marina Mayo, who's the Section Chief for Countermeasures and Mitigation Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate for the FBI, and also uh, William T. Tom Burnett, uh, Dr. Burnett is a chief scientist at the National Center for Medical Intelligence, Department of Defense. We welcome both of you. Thank you for joining us today. And Ms. Mayo, we'll start with you. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Marina Mayo, and I wanted to. Is it better? I'd like to thank you for an opportunity for me to illuminate all the great work we do in the FBI, just like our uh, Director Ray recently testified to. I'm representing uh, weapons of mass destruction. I treat you better than Director Ray gets treated on Capitol Hill. That was my first question before I agreed to this. Yes, I appreciate the comment. Um, I'm representing weapons of mass destruction directorate, uh, countermeasures and mitigation section. So along with my uh, partners in intelligence section and investigative section, we as the FBI division have a pretty aggressive mission to lead the FBI's efforts to prevent, mitigate, and respond to WMD threats and incidents. So our structure is somewhat mirrors how our counterterrorism division is built and how our criminal division is built. But um, what makes us different is that we focus on the threat itself, on the modality itself. So in other words, whether it's a terrorist, a criminal, or a state actor behind an incident, an incident, we will be looking at the nature of the attack, nature of the threat itself, as it requires multilateral uh, approach to recognize, to, to respond to, to prevent, and to investigate. So we recognize the complexity of the WMD threat and the need to, to understand the science between, uh, behind each modality 
chem-bio, radiological, nuclear. So I grew up in the counterterrorism world in the GTTF model. So I worked with uh, partner agencies my entire career, but I learned to appreciate the importance of partnerships even more when I arrived to the WMD world two years ago. Because everything we have to do to stay as left of the boom requires not just our combined authorities, but also our combined expertise. Uh, thus, uh, our partnerships in the WMD program expand beyond traditional law enforcement contacts, intelligence community contacts, and it's not just at headquarters level where I work, but also in all our 56 field offices. So as we are dealing mostly with the low probability but very high impact events, so we overemphasize the importance of these partnerships and the importance of prevention. So thus, my division has this, my section that is comprised of special agents and professional staff who are solely dedicated to, to creating and delivering those preventive programs to our field office personnel um, in the country as well as internationally. So through these programs, we integrate analytical um, assessment of the threat and uh, investigative practices. And we allow for our FBI personnel to engage their partners at the field level, regional level, to discuss joint cap capabilities as well as uh, test their uh, joint um, ability to prevent and respond to WMD incident in that territory. So today we are looking at the biological threat. So, and I wanted to emphasize we are not looking at the bio threat just from the perspective of biological warfare. We in my division in the FBI recognize how vulnerable we are to biological incidents in our economy, economical sectors such as agriculture, water, food supply. So this is where our partnership with non-Title 50 agencies is critical for us because we want to approach these threats from both public safety and law enforcement perspective. So last, I watched the last year testimony by my uh, former director, Donna Dolway, and I remember one of the commissioners made a comment how different our methodologies are in um, law enforcement community versus non-Title 50, non-law enforcement community. So surveillance response don't mean the same for us as they do for USDA or EPA, for example. But in my two years, I already have seen a significant improvement of how much um, better our communication has become and uh, how similar our language is now. So now we understand each other better. Also, uh, looking at the focus of this panel is intelligence sharing. So I have to say that we recognize that most likely, um, most probable biological incident will be witnessed by our partners in public, public sector, public safety, public health, critical infrastructure, animal health sectors, and they will receive first notification and education that something doesn't look right. And I have to admit gladly that with all the information, uh, with all the accesses we have to top secret information, uh, intelligence community data, intelligence from other countries, we rely first and foremost on these particular sectors and we work with them um, to build those notification mechanisms and joint investigative models. So again, when something happens, we come forward fast and together and as soon, um, and as, soon as possible. So in the WMD world, information sharing is a truly two-way two street. And um, whether it is an interagency um, principal committees, 
working groups at headquarters level, or it's GTTF, counterintelligence task force, DOM-DNI, fusion centers that were mentioned before, at our field offices level, we've been leveraging all mechanisms to share the intelligence. And just one phrase I wanted to close my uh, opening uh, statement is that with zero tolerance for any WMD incident, we will always err on the side of share. Thank you very much. Dr. Burnett. Hi, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, having me. Um, Tom Burnett, I'm the uh, chief scientist for the National Center for Medical Intelligence and, and represent the Defense Intelligence Agency as well. Um, historically, uh, I'm, I'm an emergency trauma physician specializing in operational and tactical medicine, but uh, as a reservist, I've supported um, the agency looking both as a counterproliferation analyst doing chem bio, but uh, also an analyst at the National Center for Medical Intelligence as well. Also have been the uh, battalion surgeon for the Sea Bernie Incident Response Force in the past. So <coughs> I say all that to um, highlight that I think historically biodefense has focused on biological weapons and, and counterproliferation, but it doesn't adequately cover the full spectrum of the biological threat characterization that we should be looking at. In essence, we lump these things together because it's on a tab that's on the left sleeve of, of, of our soldiers. And we say that Seaburn that is, is one problem set, but it's very different when you look at chem and nukes versus biological threats. Um, the potential for deliberate biological attacks from state and non-state actors have, have resulted in that prioritization of resources towards the counterproliferation analysis, um, and, and we just continue to lump those together. Um, there's increasing likelihood, though, that the greatest threat is going to come not from biological weapons, but from another major health crisis. And continued increases in antimicrobial resistance, accidental and non-accidental release, dual-use research of concern, these are the areas that are much more likely to be a risk in the future. Humanity is expanding into uninhabited regions, and we're seeing trade, tourism, and migration increases, as well as climate changes that are all having these impacts. Intelligence support to biodefense suffers from a lanes-in-the-road approach, um, and that limits our analysis and collaboration in some of these gray zones that are created by dual-use research and technology. As we see um, more incursion of exotic animal and plant diseases and the changes in travel and, and trade, um, we're seeing more researchers that have the skills to perform high-risk experiments in laboratories uh, globally. And by fragmenting our analytic focus into these elements and looking <coughs> through the lens of ChemBio, we, we lose the majority of the analysis that occurs in the natural, accidental, and non-accidental threat. So we are shifting how we, how we work with our non-Title 50s. We recognize that public health crisis um, usually is not coming through intelligence cycles. Um, but it rather comes through the, the public health community. So we don't get it in an intel feed. We're likely to, to find out about the next pandemic through our public health partnerships. So it, it crease, increases the reasons why we need to partner more closely and share intelligence with our non-Title 50 <coughs> academia, private industry, and, and foreign partners. Um, the nice thing is that, that the network of biodefense equities has grown since the start of COVID-19 but the connectivity still remains underdeveloped. One of the things that we are looking at as an intelligence community is approaching that, that uh, continuum, the spectrum of intelligence support to biodefense, so that we can focus on 
the natural and environmental risks while also keeping an eye on the, the high containment facilities where these types of research are, are ongoing and have potential for dual use. It, it's likely that any dual use threats are not going to be seen until near publication of the research that's being performed. And if we're not keeping an eye on those researchers and those facilities that are conducting that type of work, we're gonna miss the early tipping and queuing that would allow the intelligence community to provide warning in an, an effective uh, manner. So it is something that we are shifting. Um, we're shifting at, at our agency to be able to better answer questions that we learned from COVID. And the big one that still remains, and I'm not gonna go into the details of that, is origins. But if we were poised better to look at things through the lens of natural and environmental threats versus lab, <coughs> being aware of the standards, the practices that occur at these labs, um, who is um, abiding by international standards, where there are areas that countries don't have the same biosafety concerns because they aren't interested in the safety of the individuals that are working there, or countries that have access to extremely dangerous pathogens, but they don't have the laboratory capabilities to work on those pathogens. Those are the true risks that we've found through discussions about Wuhan and, and other facilities globally. And we have to do a better job of, of being able to understand those threats up front by keeping our eyes on everything that precedes the bioweapon production. And I'll uh, stop there for now. Okay, thank you both Thanks. very much. Um, as you both know, the, uh, right after 9-11 and before uh, DH, the Department of Homeland Security was created, um, a lot of talk was about um, not connecting the dots. And it wasn't so much that various agencies that had responsibility were not connecting dots internally, it was that agency A was not uh, talking to agency B, and so you had silos and turfism and that sort of thing. So wonder, I think you mentioned, Ms. Marino, uh, Ms. Mayo, excuse me, that um, uh, the importance of sharing, and, and Dr. Burnett, you mentioned not only uh, getting, sharing information or gathering information from within the federal government, but um, academia and other nations and so forth. So there are something like 18 federal agencies that have responsibility for biological uh, protection. So I wonder if, if each of you would um, expand a bit on how, what is the state of connecting the dots? What is the state of interagency cooperation with so many, um, so many different entities, um, the 18 and then within the 18, right? Um, so if you could please uh, comment on that. So I, um, I'll be happy to start here. So um, I know earlier this year you got uh, testimony from a National Counterproliferation Biosecurity Center, Miss um, um, Kathy Brinsfield. So I read her testimony and she very well described of how the center is designed to connect the agencies. So we are a proud member of this community. So the commu interaction with them is ongoing routinely, um, first name basis and uh, and the representation at each other's meetings is, is very common for us. We also have a very good, robust uh, uh, DTLE program when we have uh, our personnel assigned to other agencies, and we also welcome other agencies' personnel to sit with us on a full-time basis. Again, similar to GGTF model we have in the field offices, we mirror it here at headquarters in, the, in my directorate. So the, in, in, uh, representatives from other agencies have the same accesses to our systems as we do. They sit in our spaces, they participate in our meetings, and then they have full connectivity, the uh, full enclave 
full access enclaves to, to their uh, home agency networks. So, so that's one of the models we have, um, and it's been growing uh, not just in, in the WMD directorate, but I'm seeing it throughout uh, all of our divisions, uh, even the divisions that we we're not used to having repre representations from outside. Now it's definitely something that uh, is becoming best practice for the FBI. I also would like to mention National Security Council and their um, and 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 and. and their tools that they're offering to the intelligence, commu uh, uh, intelligence community to come together. I mentioned interagency inter um, principles committees. So um, it keeps a lot of our uh, uh, subject matter experts busy, so to participate in them. And uh, again, we're equal partner in those meetings. So we have an opportunity to share what we are seeing, not just again from headquarters level, but also we have access to information that our field offices are seeing. So, and not just our field offices, but also our overseas offices. So we have a pretty large uh, overseas program uh, through Legat Attaché. And we also have WMD representation in pretty much all critical regions of the world. So um, it has gone significantly, significantly better, not just in the past 20 years, but every year we're seeing another improvement, another partnership, another uh, memorandum of understanding. So because it's becoming uh, just uh, a muscle memory for us to, to, to work together and communicate. And we're finding ways to communicate um, in the classified world, in, uh, in non-Title 50 agencies. So I, I think we are overcoming some of the obstacles that prevented us from talking freely with each other in the past. Thank you. Just very quickly, in, in a bio, whether it's a pandemic or bio terror event, obviously time is of the essence because of the ability for things to go viral. Um, do, you, do you feel that there's adequate uh, sort of ability to instantaneously communicate among all of the, the players when, when time is of the essence? So um, yes and no. So I think good answer would be, especially from the FBI, it depends. Um, we spoke about the fusion centers, the effectiveness of the fusion centers. Again, we understand that while we're sitting here in DC, so most likely it's gonna be one of our 50 states, one of our largest cities, smaller cities, larger farms, smaller farms out there that will be targeted for, uh, uh, for by incidents. So it's building the capacity outside of, outside of the NCR. This is what our focus is. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, where we lean on our FBI, FBI offices, lean on existing task forces that bring uh, partners, not just for local uh, and state law enforcement agencies, but also build the connectivity to private sector, academia, health sector, like you mentioned. So uh, just my section alone has several programs where we build our um, our capability to communicate with non-government agencies such as healthcare services, um, uh, again, agricultural <laughs> community. So it's it's a new concept, but once you break those barriers, uh, we have uh, several good successes where the the notification was instant because we started communicating early. Got it. Thank you. Dr. Burnett. Yeah, I, I do think that we're doing a better job. Um, especially with the transition of NCPC to the National um, Counterproliferation and Biosecurity Center. Um, that oversight and coordination has increased, and, and as you had mentioned, the um, Counterproliferation and Biosecurity Integration Board, which we, we sit on together and, and meet uh, monthly to look at different ways where we can um, garner support from academia and others to answer intelligence questions and, and close gaps. 
I do think that there's still some work that needs to be done when we're talking even within our own agencies. Um, for instance, if you are looking at, at offensive uh, bioweapons threats, you're going to work with one office. If you are looking at defensive countermeasures, you're going to look at another office. If you are looking at um, any type of counterterrorism type things, that's a, that's a different office for, for bioweapons. The supply chains is another office. Um, and anything that is naturally occurring or related to a lab is going to be a completely different office. And sometimes we don't do a great job of talking to ourselves across our offices, much less with our partnerships. And we're trying to encourage that communication across the continuum so that we can, can take care of um, closing those potential threat areas. Um, we are also working more closely with our, our international partners. We do have a five-eye cooperation, uh, and our, our group meets at a senior steering group level on a regular basis and has a working group that is robust uh, and meets uh, quite regularly to make sure that we are leveraging those capabilities. Because we recognize that the STEM community is, is small, and it is very hard to recruit folks that can be wooed by uh, private industry and, and paid more. Um, and we're all fighting for the same small pool. <laughs> so um, it, it, it's a great problem in some ways because um, you know, we, we are increasing the demand signal, but by increasing the demand signal without the increase in, in support to do the, the job, we dilute out our capability to meet mission. And that's, that's a difficult area to be in right now. So. Thank you. Senator Lieberman. Uh, thanks, Jim. Um, to both of you, this is in the uh, uh, category of uh, imagining, I suppose, imagining the worst. Um, there was an op-ed uh, recently in the Wall Street Journal uh, where the writer uh, said that he thought that the uh, weapon of choice against the U.S. in a war situation might well be, said probably would be, a biological attack paired with a cyber attack. So I wanted to ask you both from the perspective of the FBI and, and the Department of Defense, whether um, that, that makes sense to you. And uh, if so, um, or even if it's not the most likely, how do, we, how do we both prepare for such a possibility to try to stop it? And then if it happens, how do we figure out who did it to know how to respond? So, uh, Ms. Mayo, you can start. Okay. So, um, as we are speaking about silos within the United States government that we are trying to overcome, so I think just like uh, my colleague mentioned, so we, we've been breaking silos within our own organization. And um, I think it all starts with a, a true cross-programmatic approach to, to the threat. We are not looking at it just, okay, if it's terrorism, we're going to do this. If it's criminal attack, we have to do this. If it's a cyber attack, we have to do this. All our working groups on big topics like this do bring in expertise from our other divisions. So within the FBI, we have what we call internal kind of fusion, uh, fusion cells, where we bring different, um, uh, different divisions to, to, to target one problem. One will be like a hate crime. Again, I'm speaking a little outside of my expertise here, but we have both counterterrorism, domestic terrorism, 
um, investigators and analysts sitting next to our hate crime team, sitting next to our, our bombing matter team. And so we all work together to understand how to tackle the threat as soon as possible. And more importantly, is there more threat coming that we can stop knowing what we know? Again, we understand the first responder um, will be not necessarily the FBI, but the, again, working with our local law enforcement and building those processes, building those response models together. So it, it's the focus of not just my, my division, but also the entire FBI. So one other thing we do to prepare ourselves best is all, um, pretty much all our preventive programs that we have in, in a WMD directorate where I work. Uh, include some version of a, either tabletop exercise or even full field exercise, where while the threat is notional, the action are, the actions are real. So we I, I've witnessed those exercises myself. So you get to see of how each agency plays um, their role and what the weaknesses are, what the overlaps are, what the duplications are, and what the gaps are. So and again building this. Uh, building this repetition into their crisis response model for that particular region is uh, what the purpose of uh, most of our preventive programs is. So the other uh, question that you were asking is about how do we determine who that is? Yeah. So mm -hmm. that um, attribution is a must in any criminal investigation. So you cannot arrest, uh, you cannot hold people accountable without uh, attributing the uh, crime to the um, uh, to, to the perpetrator. So I can speak to, again, an interagency model of how we not just collect intelligence, but also the laboratory uh, uh, um, capabilities we have across the United States government. So again, the standardization of our um, um, evidence collection examination, regardless uh, where it's happening. So, and again, we approach every, we will approach every biological attack as a criminal act. So the same standards we apply to work in organized crime, to work in child kidnapping, to work in drug cases, to work in terrorism cases will be applied to, to dealing with a, um, to, to investigating the biological uh, incident. So the ultimate goal will be the attribution and finding those that are responsible so they can be brought to justice and more importantly, uh, learning and preventing uh, further, further incidents. Thanks for that, Dr. Burnett. Yes, from sir. a okay. DOD perspective and uh, all elements of it, but, but particularly the attribution since DOD presumably would be called on to respond. Yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> so DOD is the only agency that, that considers intentionality as an essential criteria for a biohazard to be officially considered a biological threat. Um, but determining intentionality and the potential to cause harm is really complicated, obviously, in the biological space. and so. Um, I agree that the potential for use is in increasing, and historically, um, the agency has has co-sponsored an exercise, annual exercise, called Viral Supremacy, that um, looks at the potential pandemic threats. Mm -hmm. um, over the years, it's it has grown, and now is mainly managed by uh, Northcom, and it actually is taking place next week. We still have an intelligence uh, component that is takes a part. And one of the things we're looking at this year that that exercise is looking at is what happens if we have a pandemic event in the midst of a conflict and how does that change things? So it, it's become an all of government approach and, and General Friedrichs, who I believe is talking later today, um, has, has been a part of that as well. 
um, and, and um, will be apart next week is my understanding. So those are opportunities for us to look at it, but when we get back to attribution, we have to recognize that early on in, in a biological um, event, we're likely to not be able to tell the difference between something that was intentionally released or, or designed or something that is naturally occurring. Again, it goes back to why we need to increase the scope of what we look at in regards to facilities where some of this research is taking place, as well as understanding the foundational intelligence for what threats are out there. And that's a lot of what we do within DOD is looking at that foundational intelligence so that we understand based on decades of um, intel work what we would expect in a certain region at a certain time of year and we can more easily pick up on deviations from from that foundational intelligence from that baselining so okay well I mean I appreciate the fact that both of your agencies are thinking about this and uh, to use the term again trying to imagine um, how you would both prevent and uh, and respond uh, and that you're doing the kind of exercises both of you are doing. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Shalali, do you have questions? Yes, I do. Uh, Dr. Burnett, I was uh, fascinated by your term, eyes on labs. Now, I know the DOD labs. Um, what's your range of jurisdiction? I mean, FBI has labs. The great universities in the country have labs. There are private sector labs. Um, what the term eyes on labs, what do you monitor? So I, I and think who are you monitoring basically. Yes, so um, thanks for, for letting me clarify that, that um, we look at foreign capabilities um, through DIA. We're not looking internally at US capabilities. But to put it in perspective, we're, we, we look at roughly 50 mm -hmm. or so um, labs that have the highest level of containment, so the highest biosafety practices, because they have the most dangerous pathogens um, present in, that are being researched. There's, there's roughly 1,500 or so that would be one step lower um, with the biosafety practices. There's easily greater than 50,000 foreign labs that operate at the two and two plus um, level for biosafety. And so it's extremely difficult to obviously monitor and, and track all of those. But it is important for us to understand when we are looking at facilities or working with facilities that our foreign partners and adversaries work out of when they don't meet international standards. Um, because the way that we consider it what is more dangerous, a, a lab that is functioning with the highest biosafety practices with dangerous pathogens, or a lab that is operating with substandard biosafety practices with those same pathogens because it's in their backyard and the, and the only lab that they have to work on it is a, a BSL-2 or 2-plus facility with lower safety standards. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Mayo, um, you talked about uh, your uh, area being, uh, your directorate uh, uh, being um, uh, responsible for some prevention progress programs. Could you give me an example of a prevention program that you do? Um, thinking about uh, maybe the most recent one. So um, I think I can speak to it. So one of our preventive programs we have is an animal plant 
Health Criminal Epidemiological Investigations Program. So that's a, a model that incorporates our authorities as the law enforcement, as the FBI at the federal level. It brings uh, ex expertise and um, investigators from USDA. And we have uh, several other uh, subject matter experts who can speak to the importance of prevention. And we, we work with our field offices, again, uh, depending, on the, uh, depending on the territory area of responsibility, uh, identify what threats they, they have in that region. And we um, allow the field office to bring their critical partners, their local law enforcement, their health professionals, their uh, agriculture, um, sec agricultural sector, ex safety officers. Um, often we have um, first responders, EMTs, and we allow them to hear what we know. So again, everybody sits together around the round table and then we run them through an exercise. Should something happen in your territory, how would you respond? So again, it's like a no-fault exercise. It's not about pointing fingers. About, it's about to identify where we are strongest, what authorities we bring to the table, and how do we all come together, and how do we respond together uh, should something happen in, you, in your area. So that's one of the examples I have. So we have those. In, um, uh, run maybe every couple months, and uh, the, the, the states, the field offices that have a larger agricultural center, we, we try to work with them on a more frequent basis, so just to address people moving around, uh, moving out, moving in, uh, and also to stay current uh, um, on the threat assessment. That could no, be one of the you. examples. So, but we will have the similar programs in all our modalities, in the chemical, radiological, and nuclear. So, but obviously in the biological, uh, in the biological uh, sector, so the, the, the range of the agencies we work with is very large. Thank you. Uh, thank you to both of you for your service. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Dashiell, do you have a question? I do. I, uh, I also would uh, thank you for your excellent presentations this morning. I'm just curious, in the last 20 years since the uh, experience with 9-11 and the anthrax attack. We've had four different administrations. Congress has turned over the majority uh, on a number of occasions in that period of time, which seems to me leads to just a tremendous challenge for continuity of programs and for whatever problems result as a result of the, what I would imagine is just remarkable turnover in that 20 year period of time. Given the complexity of, of the organization and all of the different agencies involved, how hard is it to maintain continuity and how hard is it to, to prioritize as these administrations and Congress uh, majorities change? Could you talk to that? I'd ask both of you the same question. Want to start? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of coming as a, a little bit of an outsider because I've been um, full-time civilian government for only a few years now, but watching the, the trends and certainly what we've seen in this mission space at, at NCMI and DIA, 
I'll use an example, and, and we did have a more robust liaison program at NCMI with the medical intelligence space where we had liaisons from other non-Title 50s that sat in spaces and worked with our intelligence officers. Um, because of changes due to sequestration and changes in administration over the years, that went away, and now here we are over a decade later, and one of the recommendations that's that's come from Congress is that we have a robust liaison program that involves our non-Title 50s. So um, it is a little bit of a, a challenge to go back and, and try to rebuild something that was was broken apart, and, and we do see that certainly when we're when we're trying to answer questions that um, are are difficult and and will involve a much tighter and closer relationship with with all of government uh, in this space. My answer will be a little shorter. Yes, administrations change, directors change, the Constitution doesn't change, so our mission hasn't changed. So our recruitment numbers um, are. Yeah, our recruitment is as successful now as it was with the previous administration, with the previous director. So our successes speak for ourselves. Um, so we, we are here to protect American people and to uphold the Constitution. And that mission doesn't change um, with the changes that you've described. So I think at least at my level, and I would speak for people I've worked with in the field office at headquarters. We are as proud to work for the FBI as ever. And um, we, would love to, uh, we, would, we would love to see more successes. And uh, we are very committed and very dedicated to what we do. And we are, as we, we, now, as we were 10 years and 20 years ago. If I could just clarify that, thank you for both of you for your answers. I, I just, just to clarify a little bit, are you saying then that I know the mission doesn't change and certainly the Constitution doesn't change? The question, I guess, is do policies change and priorities change as these uh, administrations change? Is that it? I get the impression that the answer is no, that there is a great deal of continuity. But could you reaffirm that the answer is no, that there really isn't? significant policy change as you go from one administration to the next? So our authorities are coming from domestic intelligence and operations guide that are set by Department of Justice. So that what defines how we run our investigations, um, our intelligence activities, our investigations. And um, we work under the Department of Justice. So and that document has been in effect for many years. and. I, when I came to the FBI, we were operating under slight, uh, under different guidelines, but again, the principles of our investigative work uh, have not changed. I, I'd like to add, actually, though, that um, the the advances that we've seen in the national biodefense strategy and and some of the changes due to the the impact of of climate on um, potential biological threats, I, I do see that that support growing and and i think that does drive our response and where we put resources um, but i will note that the policy process tends to add more requirements while while not sharpening the priorities and so it, it does make it difficult to plan for resourcing against a topic area if there's uncertainty 
as to whether or not that will still be a priority moving forward. I feel fairly comfortable in the bio space because it seems like we've all uh, witnessed over the last three or more years um, the potential impact that a biological threat can have, um, but certainly that it it makes it a little difficult to forward plan if we're not sure if that's still going to remain the priority. And if I just add, I kind of spoke from the law enforcement uh, side, but uh, on an intelligence side, so uh, there's definitely noticeable, noticeable emphasis on the information sharing, like panels just like this, and uh, national security councils and uh, uh, NCBC models. So these are all the results of our joint recognition of how important it is for the administration to bring all the agencies together and some ways uh, force them to speak with each other, force them to share information. So in that light, I would say um, that's something that I've seen the evolution in of how much easier it has become for us as a law enforcement agency to speak with our partners in the intelligence community, how much faster the information has been flowing, and also um, how, how possible it has become for us to bring non-Title 50 agencies into the mix as well as state and local partners through, again, going back to fusion centers or task forces we have in the field. So speaking mostly from my personal experience, observing the evolution of the FBI, but uh, I, I would say there's, um, there's definitely push on us to speak, to share, and to work together. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you both again. Congressman Upton. Well, I want to, I want to add my my thanks for your service and in, in, uh, being with us today to, to help us as, as we move to the future. I guess uh, one of the thoughts that comes to my mind is uh, you've just added to my bucket list. I've never been to a fusion center. <laughs> I asked Joe. He's been to one. Uh, Connecticut. I'm going to see if I can go to one in Michigan or Chicago or someplace, maybe D.C. Uh, but I would, you know, I'm I'm struck, but uh, acknowledge, uh, Ms. Mayo, uh, when you say that public safety is often targeted, uh, we all know that. I mean, there's there's a lot of prime targets, and public safety is is certainly one of them. And I would guess that these fusion centers, if they were made even more public, might be uh, a target as well, and I'm, I'm just thinking about the job that they do. I mean, they're in essence the first boots on the ground for that particular uh, region, and I'm just r wondering what, I mean, the, the communication, the network that they might have, the, um, and maybe this would have been a good question for Ken, though we ran out of time, is uh, the relationship with the CDC and others in terms of able to get that instant uh, information that they will need to, to help disseminate to, to protect the public. But what can you tell us about the, the FBI's relationship with the fusion centers? Are, are they in the same facilities? Are they in the same towns? I, I mean, I don't even know what the, the map is, but I'm glad that there's one in Connecticut and presume that there's one in, in Michigan. At least, yeah. This is an excellent question. So it goes back to the uh, to, to the colleague that was speaking before uh, Ken, who was speaking before uh, before us about uh, how different fusion centers are across the country. So again, they are not tied to number of FBI or field offices or the uh, Homeland Security offices, Department of Homeland Security offices. They are state entity. So they're they are managed, uh, administered at the uh, state level if not regional level. So I can speak to the one um, I was 
working with when I was in San Francisco in uh, that field office, Fusion Center, um, we were co-located. We were in the same building, we were on the same floor, we were sitting right next to each other, and the information sharing was just a matter of somebody getting up and walking across the hall and passing on the lead. So again, I cannot emphasize enough, enough, we recognize that the first responder will be that state or local police officer that either encounters something or gets a call, gets a 911 call, and how fast this information will reach us. There are electronic methods to, tr uh, to transmit leads, so we have our sieges in, in Clarksburg that you know has a very large intake um, system uh, and talk where you can call us and meet your lead there. But uh, again, we re most likely it's going to be your fire firefighter or uh, a, a doctor in the area that will see something. And again, I think intuitively it will be the police or 911 um, route that they will use to, to, to make the notification. So again, goes back to our preventive program, to our awareness programs that we um, deliver to field offices from, from headquarters because we can see best practices. So if I see something works very well in Denver, I would love to bring it to our Minneapolis field office. If I see something work very well in Kansas City, so maybe when I work in, with our Idaho partners, they, they can see the, 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 um, of how we can prote how protect agricultural sector, for example. So that's our intention is to, 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 to spread the wealth and to, to share best practices across. So, and when we work with those field offices, again, it's the fusion centers, their representatives that are part of it. So in some ways it's become trained the trainer program when they get awareness and, and, and they bring it back to, 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 to their, um, to their coworkers. So it's, Awareness building is capacity building and more information. It is um, an, um, an opportunity for people that will be the first responders to come together and walk through the scenarios and they discuss uh, and, and, and evaluate how ready they are to respond. And Dr. Brunet, do you, do you all have relationships then with the fusion centers or is that something that you delegate off? Negative. This, we, 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 because of the nature of our, our mission, outward looking, it, it, we, we don't. Okay. Um, other than through our partnerships under the uh, National Counterproliferation and Biosecurity Center and, and other discussions, but yeah. Again, thank you, thank you. Dr. Alexander, do you have a question? Jonas. Um, thank you very much for your service contribution. I, I have uh, basically the same questions for both of you. Um, as a student and teacher, I'm interested in the uh, focus on the academic uh, goal in terms of uh, sharing the law enforcement uh, cooperation uh, nationally and uh, also internationally. Uh, for example, the academic law enforcement in, in terms of training the, the police and so on. And again, uh, academically, I, I think uh, we have to look again at the role of um, academic institutions uh, like the WHO, as well as the military academies, uh, 
NATO and so forth. So uh, could you kindly address some of these issues in terms of the role of the academic uh, communities at home and abroad um, to combat terrorism? Uh, obviously, we're focusing on the bio, but also chemist, maybe nuclear. Yeah, Mr. So said my opening statement, a lot of our partnerships are unorthodox, so non-traditional for law enforcement. And I mentioned a few, but uh, questions keep coming up, so I just have more things to highlight. Um, we have quite a few very successful programs with the academic uh, sector. Um, just out of headquarters, I have extremely talented people that work with me that represent WMD program of the FBI at the academic symposiums, seminars, conferences. So we also deliver our own perspective at those events, again, introducing the FBI, which for most participants, for, mo for most people in the audience, is the first time they even hear what we do and how connected we could be when we're looking at the threat. Again, the threat is common, so it's, e it's easy to build partnerships if you're working towards a common goal. And explaining how this common goal um, can bring us together is, uh, um, is what made us very successful. The other program I can mention is uh, International Genetically Engineered Machine, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. So it is a big event that brings students together uh, and they discuss synthetic biology uh, advancements. It's, like a, it's a competition. So the FBI has been sponsoring it since 2009, uh, since 2010. And again, we go and represent the law enforcement uh, agency and we speak how they can all contribute to our um, to, to safety, especially in the WMD world and specifically here is a synthetic biology world which is growing exponentially exponentially. So, and again, our goal is not just to build these relationships here at, the, at our level, but also find ways to deliver best practices to our field offices, to be a force multiplier to field offices that might not have this expertise, that might not have these relationships. And when we come and bring our own experts and offer them to field offices so they can build connectivities with their academic institutions in their territory, so it's also very well received. And again, our people can speak the same language as academia. And when we bring the law enforcement and the, and the common threat into these conversations, um, it creates a new partnership. So I hope I answered your question, but academia, academic sector is, a, is absolutely a critical partner for us, especially in the biosecurity. Dr. Post. I'll ask a different question, but you've touched on academia, so I will follow that. Uh, so two elements. The first is obviously always very sensitive, namely foreign nationals being in U.S. universities particularly from the PRC, direct targeting of specific laboratories, specific investigators, and then in terms of them returning home with obviously other well-trained credentials. So it is the question, what is it, do you, how satisfied are you with the system we have actually monitoring that at the local level? This first while issue of academic freedom always comes up, and that then leads into the second element in terms of what I would call mutual education. Uh, I'm generalizing, but I would say that most of my colleagues in academia are extraordinarily naive with regard to the likely abuse of the technologies on which they are working. What sort of reform would you like to see in terms of 
identify what is being done locally in their also infuse how would be our folks deal with bioregulators near modulation unfold the framework and sorry multi-dimensional question but I hope at least some some aspect you can answer well I was going to say actually we partner pretty closely on this um, there's <clears throat> I'm, I'm more um, I'm more confident this time this year than I probably would have said I was last year. I and mean, we certainly have some, um, some funding streams that have allowed us to reach into some, some uh, pilot programs that are addressing those types of concerns. And we're doing it in close cooperation, obviously, with the FBI and, and other um, members of the intel community. Um, for obvious reasons, I can't go into the exact details of the program. but. Um, suffice it to say that, that that is absolutely a concern within the intelligence community as well and something that we're, we're looking for creative ways to um, close those gaps and, and address that issue. So we call this program an insider threat. So the, the same concerns we have with academia, we probably will have um, in, in other uh, sensitive sectors of our economy. Um, of our life here, where people that might have information to, um, might have access to the technologies or knowledge that directly affect our national security, and these people might not be there for, for right reasons. So I think you, you, you gave an answer in your question. It's all about education. Um, we have a counterintelligence division that has a very strong, again, insider threat program that we, um, we offer to our partners uh, pretty much across the sectors. Um, we understand the importance of clearances, safeguarding information, so we, we go through different processes uh, to, get, uh, to, to work for the United States government, but there are definitely some practices that we can share with uh, those sectors where the clearances are not required. And uh, again, identifying the threat and again, making that threat common um, gives us a lot more reception from the sectors that otherwise probably would be resistant. All right, well listen, thank you uh, both for uh, sharing your knowledge uh, with us. I think it was you, Dr. Bernetti, who said that, talked about the challenge of getting personnel when they can uh, earn more money in the uh, private sector than the public sector. So we thank you for staying at least <laughs> as long as you have uh, in the public sector, sector and hope that you will continue to your service. Thank you. So we will take a brief lunch break now and be back here at 1235. Well done. And I'd like to welcome this panel. Thank you all for being with us. Uh, just in the order in which they're on my page here, we have uh, Dr. Chris Rodriguez, who's the Director of Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, the District of Columbia. We have Joshua Bushweller, who's the Director of the Delaware Information and Analysis Center for the Delaware State Police. We have Colin Mulley, who's the Deputy Director of, of the Kansas Intelligence Fusion Center, and Judith Harrison, Assistant Chief of Counterterrorism Division New York City Police Department. Thank you all for being with us. And um, we'll start with 
uh, to my right and go left, I think, is the way that's organized here. So, Dr. Rodriguez. Okay, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes. All right. You can. Great. Well, um, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you to the, uh, to the commission for inviting me here to speak, as well as my colleagues um, on, the, uh, on the dais here. Uh, I'm the director of the D.C. Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. I've been the director there for, uh, since 2017 um, and serve in Mayor Bowser's cabinet uh, as a member of her public safety team. Uh, in the Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, or we call it HSEMA, um, we do have an information and intelligence sharing uh, mission, and that takes place within the district's fusion center. Uh, now, the DC Fusion Center is unique uh, in that it is one of, I believe, a handful of the 80 DHS designated fusion centers across the country that is located within the emergency management agency rather than the law enforcement agency. Although the fusion center does have a law enforcement designation by code, uh, to access and disseminate criminal intelligence. Um, the position of the Fusion Center within an emergency management organization enables us to take um, more of an all threats and hazards approach uh, to cover both sort of the traditional terrorism and criminal threats that we see across the country, um, but also weather-related events um, and biological threats. And we saw this really play out here in the District of Columbia uh, during the COVID-19 response and the, uh, and the pandemic response. In terms of what our threat looks like here in the city, um, as we look at the, the biological threats uh, and incidents that we've observed over the last few years, the overwhelming majority of them have represented hoaxes uh, in which non-hazardous powdered substances were sent uh, via email and package, including uh, to the Congress. Uh, now, should an attack take place, uh, the district has a robust and rapid mitigation strategy, including efforts from our D.C. Department of Health, uh, our fire and EMS, uh, of course, our federal partners, the FBI, and ultimately, in an extreme uh, case, uh, the Department of Defense. Our mission at HSEMA, the Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, is really to provide tactical and strategic analysis of threats, not just here in the district, but as many of you who live in this area know, we are a region, and we rely very heavily on our sister, I would say, states in Virginia and Maryland um, for information sharing and for common situational awareness. Um, and our fusion center, as I mentioned, is one of 80 uh, within, within the nation. And, and having that relationship with the other 79 fusion centers uh, really opens up a number of doors for us in our intelligence partnerships. We have a number of connections with the DHS Enterprise um, and participate actively in the Homeland Security Information Network and Information Exchange, or HISN. These platforms do allow us to view finished intelligence products from the rest of the Fusion Center Network, including from um, some of uh, my colleagues' centers here and some of our federal partners, and they allow us to receive and send requests for information in real time to the rest of the network. Um, now, we reap the same benefits uh, from our participation in a variety of other uh, national networks, including the Situational Awareness Room, uh, which is another real-time venue for information sharing. Now, this perspective for us allows us to get ahead of potential threats uh, to our own AR AOR and identify threats as they emerge to better prepare our local partners. Um, in the Fusion Center, uh, and I 
encourage anyone who wants to come visit it. We've built out a new 42,000 square foot facility in the Navy Yard neighborhood of DC, um, which uh, we were fortunate enough in February to have Secretary Mayorkas and Administrator Criswell come uh, join the mayor in the ribbon cutting for that facility. We have federal and local partners in the room. Uh, we have the Metropolitan Police Department, which is the lead law enforcement agency here in the district. Uh, the Department of, of, of uh, Homeland Security, the FBI, DC Health, DC Fire and EMS, among, among others who are relevant to the biological uh, threat. Having that physical presence in this facility does play an invaluable role in developing incidents and sharing relevant intelligence. So the National Capital Region is uniquely positioned as a jurisdiction with an incredibly dynamic threat environment. Um, but it also, as all of us know, have a very high concentration of federal resources that can be immediately deployed in response to major incidents. Um, and as I mentioned, we are not alone in this effort. Uh, we do house on behalf of the district and the National Capital Region, Regional Watch Desk, that's funded by, uh, by Maryland, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. Again, that will push out alerts um, based on established information and intelligence requirements. Um, and some of those are um, specifically related to hazmat and, and CBRNE events that would trigger um, a response in the region. Um, based upon those, these triggers, the watches would both immediately begin making requisite notification to key emergency management partners and law enforcement partners in the region. It would also help us establish whether we need to activate our emergency operations center um, and whether we need to call in other resources uh, for a joint response. The other key part, and I know my time is ending, um, is detection. And one of the things that the Fusion Center really, really focuses a lot of its efforts on um, is the way that we detect novel pathogens. They can be very hard to detect early um, when they're not widely uh, known. We do utilize the federally operated BioWatch system which can help us, um, again, detect the presence of harmful pathogens in crowded public areas. Um, DC, our DC Department of Health also does syndromic surveillance, which is also essential to collecting data from medical providers and retail pharmacies to detect concerning trends in symptomatic individuals. And ultimately, this layered protection um, and detection strategy is incredibly important as we utilize all of our partners in order to make sure that we're keeping the nation's capital and, of course, the national capital region safe and secure from, this, um, from these threats. So thank you. I appreciate thank the you. opportunity to speak Mr. today. Mr. Thank you. Well, again, thank you to the board, to the commission, for allowing me the opportunity to be here uh, to speak today as we examine biological intelligence and the information sharing as the biological threat landscape continues to expand. <clears throat> I'm pleased to share some of Delaware's posture and perspective in this regard. The Delaware Information and Analysis Center serves as Delaware's designated fusion center. Um, DIAC takes an all crimes, all hazards approach to increasing public safety and incorporates other stakeholders in the information sharing environment within Delaware. DIAC interacts with law enforcement, government agencies, the private sector, and citizens by providing a streamlined method of analyzing pertinent information from multiple sources. DIAC then disseminates the results of the analysis to a broad range of Homeland Security partners to include police officers, public safety officials, government officials from various disciplines, critical infrastructure, site administrators, and the public. DIAC serves as a conduit in the information sharing environment with our federal partners, such as the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Air National Guard. 
State agencies such as Delaware Emergency Management Agency and the Delaware Division of Public Health also directly participate in this process and share in this responsibility, all of which would be involved in a biological threat intelligence gathering scenario. In June of 2023, the Delaware Senate passed Senate Bill 66 to form the Public Health Emergency Commission, which requires the commission made up of the governor, the Speaker of the House, the President Pro Tem of the Senate, Secretary of the Department of Health and Social Services, their Director of Delaware Emergency Management Agency, and more to meet within 30 days after the declaration of a state of emergency related to public health. The commission would then meet every 30 days until the uh, emergency order was ended. In the event of a biological threat, both Delaware Emergency Manage Management Agency and Delaware Division of Public Health would both follow guidelines from our federal partners, such as the FBI or the Center for Disease Control. Over the past four years, DIAC has participated in multiple statewide complex coordinated terrorist attack tabletop exercises, where we receive, collate, analyze, and share information in a timely manner with our state and federal partners. The terrorism tabletop exercises were hosted by the Olson Group in Alexandria, Virginia, one of the nation's leading homeland security and emergency management consulting firms. Although these exercises have been geared more towards terrorist attacks, we believe many of the same protocols procedures would take place in a bi biological threat scenario. Some exemplary strengths in which we were commended by the Olson Group include pre-existing professional relationships among local, state, and federal leadership and public safety partners was prominent during the discussion. Engaged partnership among the various entities enhanced capabilities to respond to a simulated complex coordinated incident. Redundant systems are in place to effectively alert and warn the public about the incidents occurring throughout the state during the scenario discussion. These systems include the Delaware Emergency Notification System, Smart 911, social media, and the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System. In 2019, the Delaware Department of Health and Social Services Division of Public Health, Emergency Medical Services and Preparedness Section, and the Office of Emergency Medical Services collaborated and established Sentinel guidelines based on an illicit drug mass event. These guidelines established clear lines of communication and step-by-step -step procedures for first responder exposure, mass care, and mass fatality events. Influences such as the threat of anthrax, Ebola, and avian influenza were all drivers behind the initiative. DIAC was not exempt from the unique challenges and circumstances of 2020 to 2022 as our country navigated through the COVID-19 pandemic. However, our strong partnerships and collaboration with the Delaware Division of Public Health and Delaware National Guard led to the successful release of dozens of special bulletins concerning awareness of COVID-19 testing sites and vaccination clinics throughout the state. International travel rules and regulations stemming from COVID-19 restrictions also meant that the continued alliance with our U.S. Coast Guard and U.S. Customs and Border Patrol Protection Partners as DIAC continued to push out our maritime intelligence products to our stakeholders in a timely manner. All the while, uh, as you may recall, uh, we were also creating and disseminating officer safety situational awareness products concerning the mass gatherings and protests after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, on behalf of the Delaware Information Analysis Center and the Delaware State Police, I want to thank the Commission for the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, we certainly work in a, a collective effort with our federal resources concerning biodefense intelligence and information as we continue to fill, fulfill our mission uh, to protect the citizens, critical infrastructure, and key assets of Delaware every day. Thank you very much, you. Mr. Malloy.
Uh, good afternoon, and, uh, and thank you for the uh, invitation to speak here today. I'm Colin Malloy, Deputy Director for the Kansas Intelligence Fusion Center. I'm going to talk a little bit about how we operate and how that applies to our role in the uh, uh, biosecurity sector. Uh, like our DC counterparts, the Kansas Intelligence Fusion Center, we don't consider ourselves strictly a law enforcement organization. Um, we're actually under the Adjutant General of the State of Kansas, who is dual-hatted as our Homeland Security Advisor in Kansas. So that gives us an, a window into some of the, uh, the operations that the National Guard and DOD more broadly have uh, with uh, within domestic response. Uh, the Kansas Fusion Center also has a focus on providing information to our, to our policy community, to our, to our senior policymakers in the state. Uh, so we work to better shape policy relating to homeland security issues for Kansas policymakers and senior leaders. Uh, this reflects our founding guidance where homeland security in Kansas became a separate and distinct discipline from what we traditionally think of uh, under the rubric of public safety. Homeland security in Kansas became the novel or the unexpected uh, or the overwhelming. Uh, issues of national significance or of national security interest that had a direct impact on uh, the Kansas government or the well-being of the state of Kansas came to define what we in Kansas saw as homeland security. Uh, originally, that meant transnational terrorism, uh, but as the threat environment changed, so did the Fusion Center's focus. Uh, so now we have focused teams dealing with terrorism, with cyber threats, and with critical infrastructure, but also with um, agricultural and broader bio issues and with foreign activities that may impact the state's government. In the food and ag space specifically, uh, we see our role ideally as a facilitator. Uh, the Fusion Center's bio threats focus team uh, is made up of only two analysts, and we understand that we are not subject matter experts. Uh, what we do have is, the, uh, is a unique approach that focuses on the policy implications of public health uh, emergencies or, or, or major emergent uh, biosecurity issues, a unique structure, not being a law enforcement uh, uh, organization, but still working with our law enforcement agencies in the state on public safety related matters, and the ability to provide unique information to the network of public health practitioners from government and the medical world, from agricultural and animal health specialists to include Kansas Department of Agriculture, Kansas Department of Health and Environment, the agricultural industry in Kansas, Kansas State University, and the research community, mostly from our academic institutions, Can University of Kansas, Kansas State, and various private sector organizations to provide context, uh, provide forecasts, and to provide courses of action for health events, ag sector crises, or major global events. Specifically in regards to COVID and uh, foreshadowed by our responses to the 2014 West African Ebola outbreak and the 2018 African swine fever outbreak in China, 
the combination of timely intelligence information, the involvement of our various subject matter experts, and the access to senior policymakers positioned Kansas to enact proactive responses in advance of major hu human and animal health crises. The intelligence picture informed the subject matter experts who were then able to provide timely forecasts as to how an emerging situation like COVID would progress. Uh, the involvement of state public health agencies led to policy options, uh, which were then presented to senior leadership. And the Fusion Center's multidisciplinary approach also allowed us to look at the impact of health and bio issues like the African swine outbreak, uh, uh, African swine fever outbreak in China, or COVID's emergence in Asia and then Europe. To gauge the impact, these would evolving uh, if public health emergencies were going to have on critical infrastructure and supply chains, both nationally and internationally. Um, and Again, thank you for the opportunity to speak today, and if you have any further questions, I'd be happy to take them. We will. Ms. Harrison. So good afternoon. Uh, before I begin my remarks, I just want to tell you thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to speak before this uh, commission. So I'm Judith Harrison. I'm the commanding officer of the NYPD's Counterterrorism Division. And our goal in the Counterterrorism Division is to develop and implement cutting-edge proactive policies and procedures that protect New York City and its critical infrastructure from terrorist attacks. Every day, we, did, we diligently pursue this goal by leveraging top-notch training, technology, intelligence, state-of-the-art equipment, and valuable strategic partnerships bolstered by the unwavering dedication and commitment of our personnel. The current bioterrorism threat picture remains a matter of significant concern. The evolving landscape of biological weapons and the increased accessibility of advanced biotechnologies have contributed to a heightened risk of intentional outbreaks. The possibility of using biological agents as weapons to cause harm or create fear has been a topic of interest for security and public health agencies. Intelligence gathering, information sharing and collaboration, training, and the proper response are crucial to detect and deter potential bioterrorist activities. In today's climate, we cannot overemphasize the major role that intelligence plays in safeguarding public safety. The NYPD has established an extensive intelligence gathering methodology. Our dedicated analysts in the intelligence division work tirelessly meticulously sifting through open source data, classified intelligence, and reports from field agents and international partners. They analyze this data to identify potential indicators of bioterrorism activities with the goal of keeping all concerned parties informed about the latest information on threats, propaganda, trends, and risks. Based on the information collected, intelligence analysts Access the credibility and severity of potential bioterrorism threats and evaluate the capabilities and intentions of individuals or groups that may seek to use biological agents as weapons. They collaborate with other intelligence agencies, as well as law enforcement, public health authorities, and international partners, and they draft and disseminate tactical assessments and products of note. Equally as vital as intelligence gathering in our efforts to ensure public safety is information sharing and collaboration. 
the NYPD has a long-standing interagency inter policy of continuously sharing crucial information about active investigations, as well as monitoring the ever-changing global threat stream with numerous federal, state, and local law enforcement partners. We diligently engage in collaborative efforts with various stakeholders pro to proactively monitor prevailing trends pertaining to biological threats. Embedded in the counterterrorism's operational support section are more than 20 agencies which together form a comprehensive network collaborative, collaboratively to combat bioterrorism and related threats. This interconnected system fosters seamless communication and information exchange among the participating organizations. It's through this collaborative approach that a diverse array of expertise, skills, and resources are harnessed to strengthen the overall security posture. Our Securing the Cities program, thanks to memoranda of understanding with 12 vital agencies from city and state levels, allows for an unparalleled level of collaboration and information exchange. And if the NYPD were to receive top secret information concerning biological threats or any other threats for that matter, we use our own SCIF, the Sensitive Compartment and Information Facility, to facilitate classified briefings. Our SCIF ensures that we handle information securely, the handling of information, the storage, and the discussion of highly sensitive information, which allows us to be able to speak in a confidential manner. We have a COBRA unit, which is our Chemical Ordnance Biological and Radiological Awareness Unit. It's a training unit. I'll refer to them as COBRA. Um, they play a significant role in our mission to prepare first responders for the hazards of biological incidents. It's through rigorous, up-to-date training that this unit ensures that our personnel are highly aware of potential threats and that they're equipped with the necessary knowledge and skills to recognize and respond to these threats effectively. We have a Seaburn unit also, which conducts research and tests emerging technologies to detect and combat chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosive weapons, and they develop plans for policies in their use. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our response capabilities. Our response capabilities are built on a team of highly trained counterterrorism officers from our critical response command. They are exceptionally skilled and equipped to respond to terrorist attacks, active shooter incidents, and other major incidents throughout New York City. They undergo rigorous training in special weapons, explosive trace detection, radiological and nuclear awareness, biological and chemical weapons awareness, and have the skills to detect an impending attack and utilize the best possible response to emerging situations. In conclusion, the NYPD's response to biological threats exemplifies a comprehensive approach that hinges on intelligence gathering, seamless information sharing, continuous training, and formidable response capabilities. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to start from the my left to my right now. Um, so, uh, Ms. Harrison, um, could you explain? Um, does, does the because you're uh, associated with the state police, um, do you have surveillance um, powers that other fusion centers may not have? 
we do have our very robust surveillance powers. Mm -hmm. um, we leverage our relationships with, you know, you just mentioned state police. Um, I spoke earlier about the other agencies that we work with. So, uh, you know, we utilize our technology. We're able to work with them to tap into their technology. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then for each of you, um, could you tell us which of the federal um, agencies you partner with um, mostly and, uh, and what those partnerships are like? Well, in the NYPD, we work with the agencies under the Joint Terrorist Task Force. Um, so there are numerous uh, federal agencies, whether it be Secret Service, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, um, are very uh, major partners in uh, helping us do what we do in New York City. Thank you. And the same question for you, Mr. Malloy. Uh, yeah, our primary federal partner, I would say, is DHS because they provide us with an intelligence officer who sits in our in our center. Um, but the odd uh, status of the National Guard kind of makes it uh, difficult to say whether we should include DOD as 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 an equal partner with them or not because we sit in. We we sit in guard facilities. We we have access to guard to 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 to, to their systems that, that that they provide us. Um, so we are able to leverage that relationship to, to to great effect, both for the agency and for 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 Kansas government more broadly. Uh, and of course, FBI. Uh, they we uh, we are participants in. Um, the JTTF and the Cyber Task Force and, and basically anything else that the Bureau offers uh, participation to state and local entities in. Uh, they provide a, a, a fair amount of our, our, our people access, clearances, uh, 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 support of that nature. And if we have information that goes beyond, uh, that goes beyond, uh, kind of a tipper that we would like to send out to the feds. If we see something that indicates a, a, a possible a, a opportunity for them to open a case, that we, we have close enough relationships with them that th they're going to be the first call that, that, that we have if, if, if a major incident occurs. Thank you. Mr. Bushwell. Uh, yes. Uh the North Eden Center, it's, it's a fantastic partnership with DHS, Homeland Security. We have a full-time intelligence officer assigned to our Fusion Center, as well as we have a full-time FBI agent assigned, as well as we have task force members with the JTTF, Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the FBI Violent Crimes Task Force. It's very strong with DHS and FBI. I'd also like to mention that we have a very good working relationship uh, when it comes to our maritime intelligence with uh, the U.S. Coast Guard and U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. Thank you. And Mr. Rodriguez, before you, I just want to uh, complicate your question a little bit for you. Yeah. Because I would think, I've always thought, and I think most people think, that um, that where we're sitting in Washington, D.C. is probably a prime target for a bioterrorist mm -hmm. to attack for obvious reasons. So I'm curious to know um, the same question about with whom you partner most, but particularly with regard to trying to prevent a bioterror act. Um, uh, I'd like to also know how you... Uh, cooperate to the extent you do with the Capitol Police, what the relationship yeah. is there? Yeah, all great questions. I think, you know, um, as you know, Congressman, over I think about three dozen law enforcement agencies in the Capitol in our 68 square mile 
um, uh, area. I would say our primary liaisons for the Fusion Center are DHS, that includes INA, CISA, uh, the Bureau as well, um, our very strong partner, Secret Service. We do, as a district, as you know, have um, hundreds of special events every year. And so um, our cooperation with Park Police and Capitol Police is very strong. Um, Capitol Police in particular, um, with, uh, you know, particularly with Chief Manger's arrival, um, our relationship with that entity has become much stronger. Um, just for example, on the 4th of July, um, during our Emergency Operations Center activation, we had a liaison at uh, Capitol Police um, at their op center there, um, and that was very helpful for us as we had their liaisons in our facility. So um, it is a very strong relationship with Capitol Police, but also the other um, entities that support it as well, as well as their, emergency, uh, their Office of Emergency Management there. Um, also very strong relationships. Thank you very much. Senator Lieberman. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Jim, and uh, uh, thanks to the four of you. So um, you, uh, you, know, you represent a real sweep of the country in different uh, areas, different uh, kind of geographic entities. Um, we're focused, um, this is a bipartisan commission on biodefense. We're focused on bioterrorism today. But I wanted to ask each of you from within your area, state or um, municipal government, um, how, how serious do you take the bioterrorist threat? Uh, in other words, <clears throat> is it um, in the top one or two or top five or uh, neither? In other words, it happens to be our jurisdiction, so we focus on it, but I'm curious with, with the range of um, geographic areas represented here, if you could tell us how seriously you take it. Chief Harrison, why don't we New start York with City, you? New York City, sir, we take it very seriously. We're very concerned with uh, threats um, of the biological nature, especially to critical infrastructure, such as water supply, yeah. such as power grids. So we take it very seriously. We focus our training and our attention and our information sharing and our partnerships on being able to uh, combat possible uh, bioterrorist attacks. So you'd say, Chief, that uh, an NYPD is you know, one of the great, maybe the greatest police I appreciate force. that. No, it's all right. I'm, I'm, only ref <clears throat> I'm only reflecting what I surprisingly have heard over the years from uh, police in Connecticut. You know, maybe the, pro <laughs> maybe the proximity, but. Well, you're uh, not running anymore. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, I guess I'd, I'd put it this way. Um, it, it, the question is, how, how real is it? In other words, is, is it a, is, I understand the theoretical concern about, oh, uh, uh, poisoning the water supply, for instance, but the, do you have basis for believing the threat is real? We have basis for believing the threat is real, yeah. and we operate under that basis. Okay, thanks. Mr. Malloy? Yes, sir. Our Very different, obviously, you're in Kansas. Yeah. I mean, you got some cities, of course, but <laughs> yeah. a, lot, a lot of... Okay. <laughs> you do still have cities, don't you? Kansas City, yeah. 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 I don't know whether to be offended or not. Um, from the... When we do our threat prioritization, uh, we will routinely put uh, 
bio a, a biosecurity incident at probably uh -huh. the number two slot with with a major disruptive cyber cyber event being in the and being in the number one spot. Mm -hmm. uh, defining that strictly as a biological agent used by some type of transnational terrorist organization, uh, we we probably have not seen. Uh, 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 solid reporting indicating it is a particularly uh, uh, imminent concern, but we did, I mean, we, we have seen incidents of uh, uh, domestic groups using um, uh, 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 a white powder letter to cause to cause panic. So, using uh, 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 biological means or presumed biological means is more of a, a, a psychological attack. That's that, that that's that's a fairly regular occurrence, and an incredibly disruptive one. Uh, but when we are looking at actual uh, uh, infectious disease. Uh, situations we're looking probably more at the natural out, more more like natural outbreak scenarios mm -hmm. so uh, things like with some of the animal diseases I mentioned African swine mm -hmm. fever or high path avian influenza uh, those definitely keep uh, are the people that we work with in the in the ag sector up at night okay yeah mr. Bush will yes sir thank you um, I would say when we do our statewide threat assessment, the cyber, just like can, cyber ranks up the top along with the bio. With bio. Um, the old typical aggressive physical terrorist attacks, um, that, is, that is not where we are in uh -huh. today's world. Okay. Um, trying to identify and disrupt a cyber attack or a biological attack is much more challenging and difficult, which is why we, we focus a lot more on that, obviously, now as well. Okay. And one other thing I'd like please. to mention, too, with our proximity to, obviously, Philadelphia, D.C., New York, we understand that Delaware can obviously be impacted or affected if yeah. one of these cities were one of those. attacked. Dr. Rodriguez? I'd say we, we consider it, um, uh, we take it very seriously, but not necessarily on a day-to-day -day, um, activities for our, for our fusion center. We do, add to Congressman Greenwood's question earlier, we do have contact with HHS, um, and some of our other federal partners on sort of um, the the detection piece. Um, I, I would probably say that, you know, given that we're the nation's capital, the, 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 the threats that sort of rise to the highest level are obviously um, domestic um, turmoil, uh, domestic terrorism, things that, that might play out in other parts of the country and then sort of find their way here to the nation's capital. That is something we are constantly looking at. So uh, one more question I'll ask each of you for a quick answer, and it really builds on what you just said, Doctor. Uh, so you're at the uh, local or state level. You can't be expected uh, to have as much access to uh, intelligence, real-time intelligence, about a possible bioterrorist attack yourselves. So um, uh, I presume you have to rely on uh, various federal agencies, and I, I'm, just give me a sense of whether you're satisfied with the flow of intelligence, on, on specifically on bioterrorism, since it's our focus today, uh, from the federal agencies to your local or state agencies as well. Uh, in the D.C. perspective, we do have, a, as I know the other um, entities here do, a public health analyst that is in contact with 
Again, our federal, um, uh, our federal partners that do cover um, bioterrorism. And so we do have very strong information sharing relationships in that sense. Which, which is the major point of contact? It would be HHS. Yeah. It is uh, INA, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mr. Bushwell? Yeah, I, I agree. Our relationship with INA and also uh, with our FEMA, different FEMA administrators from being in Region 3 is very good. Right. Um, so I, I feel very comfortable where we are. Good. Mr. Malloy? Uh, yes, sir. We are fairly comfortable with the level of information we have access to. Um, uh, we, we have enough partners within the the the, the, the federal security community that they that, that we do have a uh, regular flow of information related to bio uh, uh, biosecurity matters. Um, I would say if 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 it's if it's being reported, we're probably we're, we're somebody at our office is probably going to get their going to get eyes on it at some point. Um, I would say one of our bigger concerns is that at a national level, uh, bio may not have a high enough priority to rate as a very high collection priority uh -huh. with, the, with 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 various IC components yeah. so if, if it's being if it's being produced and disseminated we probably are going to be able to get access to it but if if we don't have people out there looking for it to report on it or out there to 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 collect this specific information then obviously we're not going to see it well it's interesting we'll look for the opportunity to ask some of the federal level people about your last uh, comment and and I we, echo we won't attribute it to you so you don't get in trouble. Uh, Chief Harrison. I, I echo the sentiments of, of my uh, esteemed panelists up here. We have uh, great information sharing. Um, Mostly very, with I'm INA very, or uh, DHS? Or, yes. Yeah. INA, Sorry. DHS. Right. And I'm very proud of the relationships that we've built, cultivated, and sustained uh, throughout the years. Okay. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Dr. Lee, uh, Shalila. I think. Oh, there was a scoot. Whoops. Well, well, Dr. Shalala is figuring out a computer. Senator Daschle. <laughs> I got it. He's back. I'll, I'll defer to Donna. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, one of the challenges in uh, emergencies is the communication systems. Have the fusion centers worked on communications with all of uh, your partners in a way in which you can communicate during emergencies? How have you worked through those um, uh, technological issues? Um, uh, hi, ma'am. Uh, this is Chris Rodriguez from DC. Uh, one of the ways that we work around that is um, by, if there is an emergency or an emergent event, um, we do ask for in-person representation at the Fusion Center or in our Emergency Operations Center. Um, and, and that does help facilitate that communication. And I realize that sometimes when liaisons are sent to another location, um, you know, they might not have the access or the information to share. So we are very specific in our requests to send an individual who can make decisions and who can pull information so that that can get to first responders as quickly as possible. Okay. 
like to speak on behalf of Delaware quickly. Um, we're very fortunate. We're a small state. Uh, I alluded to it in my comments earlier, but we have a very robust system, and we were actually applauded for how well we were able to effectively get information out to the public during some of the tabletop exercise we've done between the Smart 911, the Delaware notifi Emergency Notification System, um, social media, and the integrated public alert and warning systems. In Kansas, when um, a, a major event happens, uh, particularly we, this was designed with a bio event in in mind, are uh, we we transition we, we transition our focus from the traditional analytic uh, uh, assessments we put together to hosting what we call a special advisory group uh, that acts as a collection of non-traditional experts uh, with relevant experience who will be able to sit down and provide uh, direct support, uh, direct informational support to the, the uh, Secretary of Health, the Governor, the Adjutant General, whoever may need it at the time. Then we, uh, depending on what decisions they make, we then rely on the agent, uh, on, on the agencies to uh, utilize the networks they've already built. We don't try to add an, an extra layer of redundancy down. We just try to leverage uh, what our partners have already developed to push information out. And in New York City, again, if there's a major incident, and even when there's not a major incident, we come together for in-person meetings. And um, it's very important, um, as my colleague said, to get the decision makers in the room to be able to talk and to be able to communicate. And we've been able to do that very well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Senator Dash. Well, let me join in thanking you each for your presentation and your service. It's been a very informative uh, 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 period. Let me just, uh, I know that each of you receive resources and technical support from the federal government. What I really don't know is just to what extent that is helpful and what could the federal government do to enhance your mission and improve the ability for you to do your work? Could you talk a little bit about that? Maybe we'll start with, I'd like to ask each of you that and we'll start with Ms. Harrison. Okay, thank you, sir, for your question. Uh, definitely beyond resources and technical support. I think one of the things that I would like to see are more tabletop exercises, uh, more, more training. Uh, across all spectrums, where we can come together and uh, you know learn and 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 garner best practices. Thank you. You're welcome, Lloyd. Uh, yes, sir. Um, not to be too much of a disappointment here, mm -hmm. but we actually don't have a lot of complaints on this front. Yeah. Um, the 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 support we get from the uh, the, the the federal government is. Uh, incredibly valuable. We couldn't do what we do without it. That being said, we're actually just to provide ourselves a degree of flexibility. We uh, are trying to reduce our dependence on uh, federal homeland security grants uh, just in preparation for the day when somebody says they're going away so that we don't lose capability or resources when that happens. Um, I, we can always, 
we can all we we can always use more money, but uh, a lot of times that comes with strings, and uh, uh, we we don't necessarily want to uh, 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 hamstring ourselves into the future. Um, clearance support is also an important. Uh, 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 supporting feature that our federal partners can provide us, but they have provided us a great deal of support to date. So uh, again, uh, there's there's always areas to improve upon, but right now uh, there's nothing major I can think of that 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 could drastically improve uh, our our processes or productivity when it comes to support from our federal partners. That's very encouraging. Thank you. Yeah, I, I share with my colleague from Kansas. We're at a pretty good spot in Delaware. Uh, we certainly rely on the federal government um, to support us financially with a lot of the grants, uh, grant funding, which pays for a lot of our technology and some of our, our staffing, which is fantastic. Um, and our relationship with DHS INA is very good. Uh, so I say in a general sense, just being subscribed and receiving these intelligence products related to the biodefense in a timely manner is important. Uh, and being invited to meetings and conferences of, of, of some of this sort as well um, is, is really important as well. Thank you. Dr. Rodriguez? Um, thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, you know, again, I would echo what my colleagues have said. Uh, and I'll put a bit of a spin on what Chief Harrison was saying in terms of more tabletops and, and exercises. One of the things that we really need to know as local jurisdictions, particularly first responders, as everyone on this uh, on this uh, table are is and we get this question from the mayor a lot like at what point do we break right at what point in a, either it's a biological attack or a terrorist attack at what point do we fail in the sense of you cannot support us any more than you are doing um, we, we have this discussion a lot with our FEMA colleagues uh, for example we get great support from region 3 but sometimes they can't help us and that's good to know. And so having sort of those very, very candid discussions about what we can and most, more importantly cannot expect is critical for us as we plan our uh, response to a biological attack or any type of event that we might be facing. Well, that's extremely helpful. Thank you each for your answers. And in the interest of time, I'll, I'll uh, turn it back to, to you, Jim. Thank you, Congressman Upton. Well, you appreciate uh, your, your good work. And as I confessed earlier, I'd, I thought I'd never been to a fusion center, but I've actually been to the Navy Yard probably hundreds of times. <laughs> and for the last Just 20 years. No, no, I, yeah, yeah, no. I, it is a beautiful neighborhood. It, it is. Well, it, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I had a, a balcony in the Rayburn building uh, So for the last 20 years. And so every time there was some activity that came up Pennsylvania Avenue, I was uh, a witness to it as, as, as I was out there, including a 9-11 when, in fact, the Virginia National Guard and the state troopers uh, literally mm -hmm. uh, got out of their squad cars uh, underneath my office as this terrible thing happened on, on January 6th. So even though I didn't think I'd been to a fusion center, I guess I have. And <laughs> Uh, really appreciate the the work by all of you and your counterparts in the in the other seventy six around the country, and I would guess that uh, 
you work, uh, uh, Ms. Harrison, with the Port Authority as well yes, uh, oh, on, on a pretty close basis. Absolutely. As, as, a, as a Midwesterner, not really, uh, not Connecticut or, or Delaware, uh, I, I would imagine you have a pretty good relationship. I guess one question that I have, and it goes back to the earlier testimony that we had, you know, threats to the U.S. include fentanyl, something that every community and I would imagine virtually every family uh, has some terrible story uh, to tell about that threat. Do you have a relationship with the, the DEA and the BATF? Is that underneath uh, some of the things that, that you do? Absolutely. We, ha we have a great relationship with them. And, um, you know, you, you, you bring up fentanyl, and we've certainly had our challenges with fentanyl in New York City. Um, and it certainly continues to be a threat, uh, but definitely we have those relationships. And, you know, that's that's what uh, NYPD prides ourselves on, uh, the relationships that we've been able to cultivate and sustain, and the information sharing that comes with those relationships. Colin? Uh, through our two primary law enforcement agencies that are participants in the Fusion Center, the the Kansas Highway Patrol and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Uh, that is how we link into DEA because they have, both agencies have uh, task force officers uh, working uh, uh, with DEA. Uh, and through them, uh, they provide us, or they push uh, requests for information uh, from DEA back to the fusion centers to see if we can provide them any support on uh, investigations or operations they have ongoing. Uh, yes, I'm also, I also serve as the commander of our intelligence section for the Delaware State Police as well, and I have a full-time DEA task force officer and a full-time ATF task force officer um, embedded in the, alongside the fusion center, but more on the intelligence side. Uh, but your point about fentanyl is, is outstanding. The other issue, is obviously, is xylazine is a big problem as well. But we have great information sharing with DEA and ATF in this regard. Yeah, and I, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, we do have a public health analyst who does have uh, those contacts with DEA, ATF, and has written intelligence products based on requirements that we receive from those federal agencies uh, to help inform some of their strategies as well, and those of the Metropolitan Police Department. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks again for your, your great service. All right, we have some time. So, uh, Ms. Levinson, do you have a question? Yes, Thank you very much. Um, this has been a really interesting panel in terms of providing information about, uh, about information sharing, about intel sharing. And this morning, our first witness, Ken Weinstein, talked about the importance of the fusion centers um, in, in providing intel back to DHS, to INA and that that, that that is a very important source of information. And, and what you've described are the relationships you have back and forth with the federal agencies that seem to be very effective. So I come from an academic institution that is very fortunate to have a very close relationship with our FBI field office. Um, the people in that, largely due to uh, someone who's in our, our audience today, uh, I know that another, uh, many other universities have such relationships, and that, that's a source for um, expertise, scientific expertise. Um, our our uh, FBI colleagues understand um, what goes on in a laboratory, and they know how to respond when there's an incident. They also understand chain of custody in the case of, of uh, specimens that may be necessary for public health purposes, 
as well as attribution. So I'm wondering, because you represent a number of different um, entities in, different, in very, very different locations, uh, if you also have similar kinds of relationships with organizations in your locale that could help you out in the event that something happens in your um, location where you need to be providing intel and sharing that back to the feds. And building on Senator Daschle's point, are there resources that you need to be able to affect that even better? This goes to each of you, but in the interest of time, maybe quick answers. Mm -hmm. Starting, how about DCN? Oh. Because we're in DC. Um, yes, uh, you know, as, as you know, we have a lot of universities here in the city. And um, many of the inf information sharing that we do are, are is with the police departments. The police departments do rely on the Fusion Center to to get um, that information. Um, during during the pandemic, for example, we used a lot of university. The city did used a lot of university facilities for our testing sites, um, for our vaccination sites. Um, we and I, I remember being in meetings with the mayor and all of the university presidents to make sure that um, the guidance that we were providing. Um, was also consistent with what it was they needed for their populations and for their students' decisions about whether to bring students back um, or not in person. Um, all were made very collaboratively. So the universities are, you know, GW, other than the federal government, is the second largest employer in the city. Um, and so that, that makes it a very, a very important partner, and we will continue, not, not to mention UDC and, and Howard and Catholic and all the other universities that are, that are here. So those relationships are absolutely critical to us, particularly in an event um, that has to do with biological threats. Yeah, I, I also I sit on um, our Homeland Security Advisory Council and the Cybersecurity Advisory Council for the state of Delaware, and, and we incorporate academia on our councils. So we have representatives from University of Delaware, Delaware State University, and Wilmington University, which are our three biggest academia institutions in Delaware that are part of these advisory boards, but we would meet bi-monthly. Um, and obviously, if there's a need to share information outside of that, that's done. So we, we include them as partners in this process. About half of our bio team, we, uh, we, we have all, everything bio, is, we push through what we call the bio threats focus team, is made up of uh, uh, researchers and scientists from Kansas State University. So we integrate them as full members of the Fusion Center. Um, they provide us the bulk of our subject matter expertise on anything bio because they're veterinarians, they're uh, vector-borne disease specialists, plant pathologists, uh, people who occupy very, a very unique subject uh, uh, areas. We're able to leverage that for state government, occasionally even national level agencies when they're trying to reach back and find out something odd that deals with uh, specifically the agriculture sector, uh, we're, we're able to put them in contact with the right people. And uh, the uh, relationship with Kansas State University continues to grow to where we are uh, helping them shepherd along a, 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 a new outreach organization to bring in more involvement from uh, the, the, the smaller representatives from the industry to be on the receiving end of bio and ag security related information. And in New York City, we definitely have great relationships with our universities. 
Uh, we also have uh, medical professionals as part of our staff. Um, until recently, um, due to retirement, we had a doctor of infectious uh, diseases that was with us for um, 20 years and was very immersed in um, the field of academia. Uh, but again, we, we leverage, I know we're talking about partnerships, but all partnerships and certainly universities uh, are amongst uh, major partners with us as well and higher institutions. Good, thank you very much. Any of the ex other ex-officios have any questions for this panel? Well then, in that case, Chief Harrison, Mr. Molloy, Mr. Bushweller, Dr. Rodriguez, thank you for thank you being for here and oh, for keeping, well helping keep us safe. Paul Friedrichs, Major General in the U.S. Air Force, retired, uh, now Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Global Health Security and Biodefense at the National uh, Security Council. Uh, it's, it's a great, uh, I don't know if we met before. I don't think we have. It's a, it's a real pleasure to meet you. And we're grateful uh, that you've come over today because you're uh, the point of contact uh, in many ways uh, for us, for this commission with the administration. So we, we thank you for your lifetime of service, really, uh, to the government and for this late, latest chapter, and we welcome your uh, testimony now. Well, thank you very much, Senator Lieberman, uh, and Governor Ridge, I think, is on the line, and distinguished commissioners, ex officio members, Dr. George, the commission staff, and all the folks who walked out as soon as I walked in. Uh, <laughs> it cuts down on the number of questions, I suspect, uh, so uh, grateful for that as well. So. You know, I'll, I'll start by saying thanks for the opportunity to be here and to share a few thoughts as I step into this role. And I'm sure we'll touch on some of the transitions along the way, but uh, I'll just say a few words to perhaps frame my comments here. Having worked in this space for a number of years, it is striking to look back, and I actually brought visual aids with me. Uh, some of you may recognize the May 2006 mm -hmm. pandemic plan that yeah. President Bush's administration published. Then there was the 2009 plan that President Obama's administration published, followed not too long thereafter by the 2015 plan, uh, which you all very kindly put out. And I have a whole stack of your publications as well. Then there was the 2018 plan under the Trump administration. There was a 2019 document uh, put out. And then uh, in 2021, we saw a number of documents come out of the current administration as they took office that talked about biodefense, biopreparedness, and pandemic preparedness, culminating in NSM 15 and the biodefense, uh, National Biodefense Strategy that was published in October of last year. And I start with that to say, clearly, this is an area of great bipartisan in interest, and I am thankful that you all have continued to carry the torch on this, because while we published a lot of plans, uh, as, as once was said, execution is the chariot of genius, and we still have work to do in the execution space when we look at all those plans that are out there. So with that, what I thought I would do is just walk through a few of the, of the areas that we're thinking about and uh, how we hope we're in alignment with what you all have described in your publications and in others. 
The first priority must continue to be that we counter biological threats. That, you know, as we look forward at that, I think that description rightfully is broadened in the 2022 biodefense strategy to include very explicitly naturally occurring threats, as we saw with the recent pandemic, as well as accidental threats, which are a very real concern as we see the number of BSL-3 and 4 labs uh, grow around the country. And then finally, those deliberate threats uh, that at the far end of the spectrum turn into uh, biological weapons there. We have to look at that entire spectrum as we go forward. It's, it's attractive to pick one piece or the other and try and focus on all of it, but the reality is the preparation for all of those are so similar that we, I think, are not doing our due diligence if we see that we're going to have a discussion today about pandemic preparedness and talk about how we need to do that as if that were separate from bio-preparedness and preparing for biological weapons that might be used in the future. There's, there's so much overlap across that space that we really should recognize and acknowledge this is a continuum and our preparedness efforts need to treat it as such. Enhancing pandemic preparedness is obviously a key lesson learned from the last three and a half years. And it's even more important if we reflect on the frequency with which naturally occurring biological events are now occurring. If you look back over the last several thousand years, some of that's probably a reflection of how well history uh, was passed down through the ages. But there's no argument, I hope, for most uh, who have looked at this, that we are seeing more large-scale naturally occurring biological events today than we've seen in the past. And you know, certainly the, the pandemic of 1918 was a bellwether event. But between 1918 and the COVID pandemic, there were multiple other uh, events which created real threats to the global population and to our national population. Can I interrupt you uh, and uh, ask you why you think that's so? Why I think which is so? Why the, the naturally occurring biological events are happening more frequently now? Sir, I've heard many opinions on that. I, I think the facts to say definitively this is why it's happening yeah. are, are not clear enough where I can express a, a causal effect to say this is the single cause why this is happening more frequently. Uh, so I, I will give you a bit of a non-answer in saying I, I personally believe that there are likely multiple reasons why that's occurring, but uh, I do not have an answer that I can point to to say this is the unquestionable reason yeah. why Interesting. That. So it's not just as some people have said that we're, uh, you know, we're all moving around so much more than we did before because of the uh, modern uh, transportation capabilities, uh, and therefore once something happens or when, once a virus or whatever gets moving, it moves quickly throughout the world. That unquestionably contributes to the ease of transmission. Yeah. You know, if you look at the flow of aircraft around the world today, you're exactly right. If something happens in country A, as long as they have a connection to the global transportation network, People move from country A to countries all over the world very, very quickly. So that is a contributing factor. I don't think it's a causal factor. And you know that, that's why I'm hesitant to say that there's one explanation for it. I think there's a variety of contributing okay. factors. Sorry to interrupt. Not at all. And and I'm, you know, 
I'm very comfortable if folks want to jump in with questions along the way, so you know, please don't hesitate, sir. that there are only three of us up here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I am grateful for that. That's uh, uh, having testified before groups with larger numbers who uh, all wanted to ask questions. And then the last point that I touch on sort of in the preamble is global health security. And, and in some ways, this gets back to the question that you were just uh, raising, why are we seeing different events today than we were seeing in the past? I think we have a better understanding and a better ability to recognize what's happening around the world. Clearly, there are viral hemorrhagic fevers that are recurring in Africa and likely have been you know, occurring for many, many years there, but we were not tracking those or aware of those. There are other types of viruses seen in other parts of the world. We're seeing interesting challenges with avian influenza and other influenza uh, strains in multiple parts of the world. So we have a, it is absolutely true that we have a better understanding of what's happening around the world. And uh, as I'll come to in a few minutes, a need to even better uh, understand what's happening around the world because of the point that you made about how well connected we are around the world. So the biodefense strategy lays out a number of areas for us, and the first one is what I just touched on, and that's early warning. That's the need to have those connections with allies and partners, both domestically and internationally, where we're clearly, clearly and uh, accurately and in a timely fashion sharing information. And I know that's not anything revolutionary or new for you all, but I do see an opportunity for us to continue to work on that Given the way our public health structure uh, exists in the United States today, we did recognize in the National Biodefense Strategy and in all of the other documents that I cited that there are still opportunities to improve how we share information within the United States to understand what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis and to also get, God bless you, early warning of uh, events and how they may be coming into our country. But that ties into then the early warning agreements that we have with allies and partners around the world and the need to continue to look at how we improve that data sharing and information sharing. And that's actually becoming harder in some respects rather than easier. There's a rightful tension between privacy and how we protect data as the European Union has done and how we share necessary data to protect the global population. And that's work still to be done to understand what that right balance is so that we are sharing data where necessary in the public health front and protecting data where appropriate for individual rights as we go forward. Next area is global health security. How do we help countries that may not have a robust public health infrastructure or may not have the, the workforce that they need to take care of their population? I think the United States has played an incredibly important role in that space through uh, programs like PEPFAR, for example, where for years we have been able to go and help countries in uh, dealing with some of the most challenging infectious diseases uh, that we've collectively faced. We've made real progress with thousands and uh, arguably hundreds of thousands of lives saved as a result of that. And that has helped to form the foundation for public health improvements in countries, uh, especially in low-income countries. Um, and then prevention. What are the opportunities to work on preventing biological threats? And uh, I'll, I'll not go too deeply into that right now. I think that there's a lot that we can unpack uh, in the classified setting on that. 
But in the unclassified setting, clearly there's work to be done if you have appropriate PPE for those who might be exposed, if you have good vaccines, if you have the ability to prevent someone from becoming infected, that clearly is desirable rather than treating them once they're infected. And still work to be done in that space. We've learned a lot about supply chains as we go forward and how challenging those are in a globally integrated world. Grateful to see the efforts now that uh, Congress and the President uh, have uh, embarked upon to friendshore or onshore some of those critical uh, assets that we need. And then domestic health capacity was another big lesson learned from the pandemic and from other analyses, including yours, that the resilience of our healthcare system directly contributes to our ability to respond to biological threats. And arguably, we're in an interesting place as we look at our healthcare system for a myriad of reasons. Much like the rest of the world, you're well familiar with the workforce challenges that we're facing, which are exacerbated by the large number of doctors and nurses who have left the workforce earlier than planned as a result of the pandemic and cannot be quickly replaced. With a timeline to train medical specialists of any number of uh, types, that's going to take years for us to get back to where we were, let alone to get back to where we need to be. And then rapidly and widely, widely available diagnostics, uh, self-evident that we need to have the test available so that people don't have to go into a congregate setting to get tested, but can test at home. I think there was you know, tremendous success with test.gov and the ability to provide tests through the mail for people so they could test before they leave their home and expose others. Similarly, uh, on the agile therapeutics development front, uh, Operation Warp Speed, now called H-Core, was a tremendous success story for the United States of America. And I, I hope that Americans are proud of what we collectively did there by investing early in working with our pharmaceutical uh, companies to de-risk the production of vaccines in a safe and effective manner following the appropriate testing and evaluation along the way. That was unprecedented, and it's a benchmark that we should continue to strive for, and then look at how we can improve upon. Do we have the ability to actually safely and effectively test, and then manufacture, and then distribute and administer vaccines even faster than we did in the last pandemic? That's a daunting list, but it actually looks a heck of a lot like what you all said in 2015. So, you know, it's it, it shouldn't surprise anybody in the room here as we go through all of that. But as the commercial says, wait, there's more. So there's still work, as you well know, and as you touched on in one of your recent publications in the agricultural space. And how do we fuse that as we go forward? How do we get a better understanding of what's happening in the non-primate animals and in the plant space so that we can get those early warnings of changes that may be happening that could, at a later date, pose a greater threat either to our economy or to human beings as we go forward. Uh, with the, you know, at the risk of perhaps seeming uh, a little self-serving in this, I'll say that many of you are tracking the announcement last week about the Office of Pandemic Preparedness standing up, and I'm very honored uh, to have been asked to be the inaugural director of that. I think that's a deliberately intended by congressional leaders and by the president to be a step towards continuing the journey that we've been on now for many years to improve our preparedness and to integrate those activities uh, in, uh, in a single office in the White House because we learned that there was great value in having the ability to look across all the departments and agencies 
understanding what was happening, not just in HHS, but also in the VA and DOD and elsewhere, and pulled together that integrated approach. So we're, we're moving forward with that. And again, I'm very honored to, uh, to be asked to step into that role. Uh, candidly, a little daunted by it. I think there's going to be uh, a lot of opportunities and challenges with that. So as I mentioned at the beginning of this, we've written a lot about what we should do but it's what we actually do that's going to make a difference going forward. I'll highlight a couple of uh, recent successes that I think are noteworthy. Uh, you may have seen the announcement last week that the first tranche of proposals were funded by the pandemic fund. And uh, you know that's a really remarkable investment that the United States and others in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, other countries, uh, helped to set up that pandemic fund and then put out a solicitation for request around the globe, received uh, over 130 uh, proposals. Interestingly, the vast majority of them spoke to workforce challenges and the need for countries to partner with uh, other entities like the pandemic fund to address workforce challenges to help mitigate the, the threats that future pandemics pose. The United States, I think, should be very proud of the $1.4 billion that we put into that pandemic fund as seed money to help move this effort forward in countries all over the world. Our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have now launched their Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, which is a big step forward for us in pulling together data streams across not just the U.S. government, but public uh, governments or public uh, health entities at the state and local level. Still work to be done. Very grateful for the uh, discussion that I had with Dr. Cohen, the new director of the CDC this morning and excited at the leadership that she's going to bring and the work that our CDC is doing to help us be able to better see ourselves domestically. And then we committed $150 million over three years for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, again, getting after what are the investments we should be making before the next event so that we are better prepared for it, have the infrastructure in place and the connected tissue with industry and with public health partners. These are certainly not exhaustive uh, list of, uh, it's, it's not a complete list of all of the things that have been done in the last year, two years, uh, or two and a half years of this administration. Uh, but those are exemplars of the sort of investments that we will need to continue to make with the help of our colleagues on the Hill, and most importantly, with the trust of the American people that indeed we are committed to providing good advice safe and effective therapeutics and vaccines, and a clear and executable plan that we all understand, and as some of the previous speakers, as I was listening to them commented on, have regularly exercised and are ready to use whenever the next pandemic occurs. With that, I'll conclude my opening remarks, and I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, thanks, uh, General. That was great. So um, as you, thanks for your kind references to our uh, foundational report from 2015. It turned out to be accurate, perhaps even, <laughs> apologize for the word prophetic, not because any of us are prophets, but we just talked to the experts and it was pretty uh, clear uh, based on what they told us what the threats were and that we were unprepared uh, as a nation. Uh, one of the things that uh, we were concerned about from the beginning was the uh, diffusion of uh, offices and agencies in the federal government that uh, were uh, at, at all responsible for 
biodefense, if I can use the term. And uh, we actually backed into a uh, recommendation, um, which because we couldn't think of anything better, which is that it be given uh, uh, the authority for doing that would go to the vice president. So that uh, that uh, I don't know what the appropriate metaphor how you finish the sentence. We'll have a contest later. It went over as well as <laughs> maybe that change from classic Coke or something like that. <clears throat> but, uh, or the Bud Edsel. Light, Bud Light. Bud Light lately, yeah. Oh, sorry if anybody's here from uh, St. Louis. Um, but uh, anyway, um, that's why I was I'm speaking personally. And I would say the commission has felt all along that the uh, new Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response should be uh, combined with the uh, the, the other role you have as a senior director for health security and biodefense at the National Security Council. So we were really, um, uh, I was, again, I speak personally, uh, grateful when President Biden had asked you to take on both assignments. And um, part of uh, why we originally made the recommendation we did was that we felt that it was really not optimal to ask an assistant secretary, as the assistant secretary at HHS, to assume this collaborative role with people in uh, uh, parallel departments, et cetera. They really ought to be in the White House. And um, I, I, so I, I am uh, and, uh, failing uh, uh, widespread adoption of our brilliant idea of the vice president. Uh, the National Security Council certainly seems like uh, the next uh, uh, best alternative. So all this is a preface to ask you, will you now be the key coordinator, collaborator of the biodefense enterprise in the U.S. government? So I'll, I'll, if you'll forgive me, I'll hedge my answer just a little <laughs> bit on that in saying that I am currently the senior director for Global Health Security and right. Biodefense. I'll become the inaugural director of the Office of Pandemic Preparedness uh, next month. So I'm going to speak in my current role okay. uh, that, you know, the NSC is going to continue to perform its policymaking functions as it is, uh, it is has historically done. Uh, as I am learning uh, and meeting with many of my colleagues across the government, there are a lot of strong opinions about the Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response and how that should best complement and integrate, not duplicate efforts. And so I will be very careful in saying that I am not going to be able to commit today to what the final roles and responsibilities will look like beyond what's in the legislation that right. was signed by the president. I think that it will be very important from a trust building perspective to actually take those inputs as we go forward and ensure that we have a clear understanding of roles and responsibilities. But I think there would be a lot of very disappointed people if I pretended that I knew the answer to your question right now of exactly how this is going to work. Okay, un understood uh, completely. Um, so I would say, uh, based on our record of um, uh, conclusions and recommendations, um, I hope as you go along in this process that uh, you will build your office into the central collaborating uh, point in the federal government because it, 
it needs collaboration, and I think uh, it needs to be in the White House, and uh, you're it. And uh, instantly, I do want to say that uh, the Office of Pandemic uh, Preparedness and Response is very important, but it, it is important, has a tremendous potential, but uh, if I understand it correctly, it's in a way, you might say, independent, whereas the, uh, the, the other role you have as Senior Director at the National Security Council is fixed with authority within the National Security Council and therefore the White House accountable to the president. That really, so that combination, I think, really strengthened uh, both offices. So I, I understand it, it's a work in progress, and you're right not to answer my aggressive <laughs> question. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. Okay, <laughs> okay, I've, I've been asking this uh, uh, final question to just about everybody today. So you talked about the daunting list of responsibilities um, you have. There's more, right, as you said. And um, so I, I wanted to ask you, and I know you're new at this, but, you, but you're not new in this field. Um, generally speaking, where do you rank uh, the bioterrorist threat uh, among the, the list of um, daunting um, responsibilities you have? Uh, in other words, is it real? Are we overstating it because it happens to be our responsibility as a commission? Um, you know what I'm asking. I think I know what you're asking, so yes. I'll, I'll give you my best answer on Good. that. So, you know, in the spectrum that we described, there are state actors working on a variety of bi biological threats and non-state actors. And we know that non-state actors have expressed interest for years in any number of different types of weapons. Right. The reality in this space is that the technology and the science and the ability to work in this space has had a very, very high bar that made it difficult for people to be very successful unless you had a great deal of scientific expertise and resources and uh, everything that goes with a biological lab effort. There's been some excellent reports, and I'll point to the UK's biostrategy that just came out. There was a really nice product from Carnegie a couple of years ago, in addition to yours and others, an article in Science uh, maybe two months ago that highlight that that bar is lowering. Uh, that as you look at the confluence of AI and biotechnology, as you look at how, for many wonderful reasons, we're moving forward in the biotechnology space and able to do tremendous good that was only something we could hope for even five years ago. Uh, we do need to understand what risk that creates, and I think that's an area in which we are spending some time and effort to understand what does that, that threat space look like? How is it evolving? And what are the appropriate mitigation steps that we should implement going forward? That's a long-winded way of saying, mm -hmm. yes, I, yeah. I do think that you all were correct in identifying that both state and non-state actors may play a role in this. You asked how I rank that. I think that's a more difficult question to answer right now, uh, especially in an unclassified environment. Right. You know, there are the risks that are very unlikely but very consequential. And we said for many years, a pandemic is unlikely, but very consequential, right up to the point that it happened starting in 2020. Uh, and I, I think we're gonna have to step back and take a hard look at that to understand, do we have the right stratification of the risks in the biological space, both on the naturally occurring accidental and deliberate side, because all three of them appear to be changing. Right. 
Thanks very much. Very good to uh, get to know you a little bit. Look Thank you, Look forward Senator. to working with you. Thank you, Congressman Senator. Greenwood. Thank you. And I'm going to ask a very closely related question. I'm going to combine it with a question that Dr. our fellow commissioner, Dr. Peggy Hamburg, former FDA commissioner, phoned in because um, she's watching. Um, and it goes to the bioterror issue. Um, there have probably been more bioterror events than uh, of which most people are aware, but they've all been relatively small in impact. But as you just alluded to, if you think about what uh, police think and crime fighters think about, you know, motive, um, means and opportunity, right? So we know that there's plenty of motive out there, regardless of how diabolical, you know, we think it is. Um, uh, opportunities are the relatively easy part of the quotient, I would think. And the means is the one that you were, to which you were just addressing yourself, which is it's with synthetic biology, gain of function, um, the things that we can now do in, 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 in those realms. It seems to me that it, it is not, as, as we said about pandemic, it's not a question of if um, a major bioterror event will occur, but it, when. Um, because it's it's we're climbing up the scale of of means uh, fairly at a pretty rapid um, pace. So w the question is, what are your thoughts about how we can improve our our uh, intelligence gathering on uh, who is thinking about who is developing uh, the these uh, potential um, pathogens for a terror attack? So. If I may, I'm gonna, before I answer your specific question, I want to offer a, an observation. Uh, you know, as we look at the intent to use any sort of weapon, there has to be a belief that there will be a, an effect from using that weapon that makes it worth the consequences. This is the whole premise of deterrence theory that you know you are very familiar with, perhaps much more. Killing familiar. a lot of infidels is one motive, right? Well, it, it and and it may well be, but part of why I think your report and others are so valuable is it highlights the importance of resilience. If we are able to demonstrate that we have the ability to detect quickly and protect effectively, it, it does actually change the calculus of whether to employ uh, a biological or other weapon uh, that's out there. And, I, and I, I would hate for us to lose that awareness that there is a tremendous importance to us continuing to work on the resilience of our healthcare system and our public health system and our ability to protect the American people as we are doing, because that is actually quite effective in changing the calculus about whether it would be worth the consequences. So that, I, that's a point that I just put on the table. Assuming a rational actor. Uh, assuming a rational actor, absolutely. I, you know, I'm not going to begin to posit what might happen with an irrational actor. Uh, but to your point about sharing intelligence, I, I thought it was very interesting that you all had that the four representatives from the fusion centers in here. I mean, this is a, a real step forward for us to recognize the myriad of data streams that we should be looking at to better understand evolving threats, current threats, uh, and continue to monitor threats that have been of concern in the past. The great news is we've got an enormous amount of data across our system. As we move to electronic health records, we've got great data on people who have been exposed in the past. As we look at our public health infrastructure, some of them have exquisite data near real time. Wastewater uh, surveillance is a great example of what's old is new again. You know, looking at what's occurring in the wastewater before you start seeing people come into the emergency room 
is a great leading indicator to understand what that bioenvironment looks like in a particular community. Pulling all that together and marrying it with intelligence assessments or assessments from the intelligence community is an important fusion uh, activity that uh, I think we're all working on and trying to understand how best to bring those different data streams together so that we know what to look for based on what we're hearing about threats from the public health community or the intelligence community or wherever it may come from. And similarly, we're informing them by saying, here's what we're seeing right now. Does this track with what you told us we should be looking for? So there's always room for improvement in that space because there's so much more data available today than in the past. And we need to really understand how to integrate that data so that we're not relying on someone recognizing, you know, I just saw this interesting thing two days ago that matches what you're telling me today. But instead, we're pulling that data together in a way that those connections become readily apparent. Just a quick follow-up. In terms of the, the means, um, the technological means, the equipment and so forth, do we have relatively good transparency into who might be acquiring those kinds of things that shouldn't be, or is it just, is it so omnipresent now that, that it's, you can't even follow it? Uh, I think if you're speaking to, you know, the bioweapons in particular, uh, there's a great deal of work being done on that, and I don't want to speak for the intelligence community on whether, how well they're able to see everything. That's, I, I, I don't feel comfortable answering that question. What I do feel comfortable saying is sort of a, reiteration of my previous point, we have exquisite data across multiple streams. And right now, I think one of the real challenges is not can we see everything, it's can we understand everything that we can see? Because there's so much data out there, how do you bring that together in a way that helps us recognize which data point is actually meaningful and which is just the, the background noise, if you will, of people doing dual-use research or any number of other things? So I, I would defer with respect, sir, to the intelligence community to specifically answer your question. Thank you. Thank you. you bet. Thanks, Jim. I should have asked you at the beginning because we could call you doctor, general, director. What what title do you prefer? Sir, I prefer Paul if you're comfortable with Paul, that. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> That's it's good. much easier that way. Yeah. That's, uh... This is in my mind <laughs> because I'm about to call on Dean, Chancellor, uh, let's see, Pre university president, secretary, congresswoman, and commissioner, Donna Shalala. <laughs> I feel like I should stand up now. <laughs> we all should. Thank Donna, you. Um, I had, uh, one of the things that we observed during COVID was that Operation Warp Speed was, uh, while it was designed um, and the White House played a significant role, as did HHS. It was actually executed by the Defense Department. And it turns out, what we should have known from the beginning, that the Defense Department has a capacity for execution, for procurement, that other agencies don't really have when you're dealing with a national emergency. To what extent, as you're thinking through preparedness, are you thinking, I, one of the things I worry about is that we're gonna spread these responsibilities all over the place when we really have a set of skills that already exist um, in defense. Um, how are you thinking about that? 
Well, I'll, I'll have to start with the disclaimer that I have a 37-year bias uh, because of yes. my time in uniform <laughs> no. on this one. So, you know, a couple of immediate thoughts on that. The Department of Defense is just that. It is designed and tasked to do very specific defense-related activities. I think we should, as a nation, carefully consider whether we also want the Department of Defense to become the Department of PPE Procurement and the Department of, uh, of Flu Vaccine Development and Testing and, and a myriad of other things which currently reside in other agencies. You know, we've, my personal opinion on this, and, I, and there's been suggestions made on this already, some of those acquisition authorities that enabled Operation Warp Speed are specific to DOD, and the alternative to making DOD the Department of Health uh, Defense or of vaccine procurement is instead to provide those contracting authorities and acquisition authorities to HHS. Uh, and that's part of what I think we need to continue to discuss as we go forward is where does that responsibility best lie? And then align the authorities with the responsibilities. I'm choosing my words a little bit carefully because this is part of an ongoing discussion right now that's happening on the Hill and as part of the PAPA negotiations. Uh, but I, I think to your point, uh, we, we do need to collectively be clear about aligning capabilities with responsibilities. And mm -hmm. it would be unfortunate, in my personal opinion, if we ended the discussion by saying, well, if this happens again, we'll just go back to DOD, because that's really not DOD's primary job. I, I, I agree with that, and I'm anxious to see how the discussions work out. Another area that we learned during COVID is that the public health system is relatively weak, but the healthcare system took on some public health responsibilities, um, providing um, I had never heard before in my career the idea that hospitals would give vaccines. Uh, normally, we left that to the public health system, the individual doctors, uh, particularly childhood vaccines. But it turned out the monies in the healthcare system and the public health system is relatively weak. They're like two trains running along next to each other. The need to think through their different roles the way you're thinking through the Defense Department, I think, ought to be a priority. So I agree with your conclusion. And if you'll forgive me, I will push back a little bit. I think we have extraordinary colleagues in our public health systems. And I would, I would be reluctant to associate myself with saying that any of those individuals didn't do what they should have done. I think there clearly were opportunities to do things better in the response, not just in the United States, but globally, because of a whole host, a myriad of factors that, that we uncovered with this pandemic. But I think we have remarkable professionals in the public health space. And to your point, we also had remarkable professionals in the hospital and healthcare delivery space, and we balanced the load. But, you know, as a reminder, there were at one point 70,000 military medical personnel or somewhere in that ballpark deployed to augment the healthcare delivery side because there were also challenges there. That every part of our system was stressed as we went forward. And I think I'm uncomfortable saying that any one part was particularly problematic. I think there were 
pockets of excellence and real areas for improvement across the system. And that's why I come back to my discussion about resilience. As we look at preparedness, I think the whole system has opportunities for improvement. And, we've, and you've identified that in your report. We've identified that in the National Biodefense Strategy. It's not specific to one area that did particularly well or particularly poorly. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. And I, I didn't mean to criticize the CDC, an agency I love, but the lack of resources in the states and in the local communities in public health in particular is not because the people weren't capable. It's because politically we've never given them um, the level of resources they really uh, deserve um, over the years. So I think that is, that is a very important observation there, that from a resourcing standpoint, part of what I think we're exposing and what I was alluding to in my opening comments is we are going to have to be very mindful of how we monitor for biological threats, whether they are threats related to uh, naturally occurring accidental or deliberate events. And to do that, we are going to have to relook at our investments in surveillance and in public health monitoring and in how we then respond when something occurs. Now, whether that winds up being public health the way we did it in 1900, when we had people in all of our major cities who were getting ill from poor water and we recognized the need to work on improving the quality of water, or if it's the way we did it during the polio, uh, the end of the polio era, when we finally had a vaccine that we could offer that could prevent children from becoming ill with that, or whether there's a 21st century solution that is much more of a hybrid solution that leverages a plethora of people and technologies to better protect the American public and the global public, my money's on the latter. I think it's going to look different than what we've done in the past, and it should. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for your service. Thank you, ma'am. It's been a privilege. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Donna. Senator Daschle. Well, I would just add what Donna said. I, I, I thank you for your service as well, Paul. And I, I, uh, I would just add that I, I don't think anyone would challenge the quality of public health. I think we would argue that there is a serious question about the numbers and the resources and whether or not we have the infrastructure now that we need to have if we're going to address the challenges we face in the future. But let me, uh, this is a big year for biodefense and public health generally with PAPA. You've got the Farm Bill, NDAA, a lot of legislative activity this year, hopefully. I guess I would just ask, first of all, what your what your view of the prospects for that legislation, all those legislative vehicles are. And, and as you look at the prospects, if you had to list one or two of your highest priorities, what would they be? So, sir, I... Uh... I left my crystal ball at home, and my ability to predict what's going to happen on the Hill, unfortunately, has been pretty poor. So I, I'm going to dodge that question just a little bit and say that I'm eager, as are we all, to see the outcome of these very, very important deliberations. Because you're right, there's some hugely consequential pieces of legislation before the, the House and the Senate this year that will directly directly impact the security of the United States of America. There's an opportunity for us to make much needed improvements based on the lessons learned and very eager to see uh, the product of those deliberations as they come forward. I think it, it's difficult to call out a particular piece of legislation that is the most uh, important because there are so many pieces embedded in different uh, 
items before Congress right now. And it gets back to the point that you made just a moment ago and that Commissioner Shalala made and, and others. This is a very complex problem, and the solutions to the problems or the lessons that we learned from COVID touch on the agricultural world, they touch on the public health world, they touch on the industrial base and how we address supply chains, they touch on R&D, they touch on almost every aspect of what our country relies on in order to be prepared for the next pandemic. And I think it, my, I'll speak as an individual on this one if I may, it would be difficult to pull out a single piece of legislation and say this is the most important one because as you all pointed out in your commission report and as we pointed out in the National Biodefense Strategy, there are improvements needed in multiple areas across the government. And that's why these various pieces of legislation are all important as we go forward. Well, thank you for that. I, I share your lament about the lack of a crystal ball. I'm concerned, frankly, with how much politicization there is around some of these issues and the onerous amendments that have been added. But uh, but but it, it, as you properly know, it couldn't be more important from a legislative point of view that we address them successfully. I, I, I hope you may have a, a clearer crystal ball on another issue for which you don't need legislative intervention, and that's the National Biodefense Strategy and Implementation Plan that uh, President Biden offered uh, a release last October. Uh, obviously, it's a comprehensive strategy that's going to take a while, but clearly it's such a critical aspect of, of our work from a, from a security perspective. And really, it's the responsibility of any administration, but now this one, uh, to take the plan and the implementation of that plan seriously. I'd be interested in, in what sense you have about how it's coming and what the process looks like as we look to the next few months? So I would hope that the American people would be very proud of the progress that's been made in the past year as we've worked across agencies and departments to integrate efforts and to, to execute what was laid out, as you described, a very broad-based plan. Uh, that we refer to as the National Biodefense Strategy. I, I do wonder sometimes how many people understand how much is embedded in there and how important that is in, uh, and how much it affects individual lives going forward. Because there are critical things. Going back to Commissioner Shalala's question about public health, there's critical aspects of the public health infrastructure that we're working on improving. There's critical aspects of the R&D community that we're working on improving. We're in the process now of doing that one-year snapshot of where are we, what are the improvements that we've made so that we can pull all that together and provide an update to the president, and I'm sure there will be many others who will be interested in that. Uh, but I believe we have made real progress. We have learned some important lessons from the pandemic that are helping us identify where we need to improve. And we can get farther with the right legislation uh, that's, as you said, that's passed uh, by our uh, congressional colleagues yeah. uh, later this year. Because some of these problems can only be fixed uh, or will require help from both the executive and the legislative branch. Well, thank you for that. And again, thank you for your leadership. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for asking about the biodefense strategy. Congressman Upton. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and uh, Paul. Welcome. I really look forward to our private meeting after this uh, before we all have to go our, our ways. And uh, I'm sad to say I just got a little report on my 
my phone that the, the House is adjourning today. Uh, they're not going to be in tomorrow. Uh, they're not going to take up the ag appropriation bill. Uh, things appear to be in quite uh, disarray, I'll, I'll put it nicely. And one of the, the things about this commission is the first word is bipartisan because that's who we are. Uh, I was chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee when we did PAPA, uh, and uh, Susan Brooks, who's a member of this panel but not here today, was, was played a major role, as did Donna and everybody, uh, and it was the right thing to do, uh, for sure. And, and I would just, I know that in your new position, and we sort of, since you're in the Air Force, or we're in the Air Force, uh, we want to be on the, the takeoff with you. Uh, we want to be a, a source that you can look at knowing that it's bipartisan, knowing that, frankly, we don't have a lot of legislative days, I think about a dozen between now and the end of the fiscal year, and we've got PAPA, we've got the Farm Bill, we've got all these uh, major bills, and it just, you know, somehow we have to put Humpty Dumpty together again. And uh, I appreciate what the President's doing with your appointment. Uh, it's a very important spot, uh, just your title alone is that. And I would hope that you would have the forces to help marshal a pathway where we can be together as we have been in the past uh, to look at this. I think, as, as Jim said, uh, it's not when or it's not if, but it is when. And we have to be prepared, and that is your role. And uh, you've got a great history uh, behind you, uh, all the resources, and we just compel you to use them uh, so that we can, in fact, protect the American public uh, and, frankly, the world in, in terms of what we've done. Uh, we did, I thought, darn, darn well in terms of uh, dealing with, it, with COVID. Uh, I can remember myself going to my community college and having the National Guard actually put the shot in my arm. Uh, two weeks ago, I was at the CVS pharmacy in the in my hometown, and you know, the pharmacist uh, did it, and then she did my wife uh, a week later, and she said, why weren't you with Fred? Um, but uh, we've learned a lot. I wanted to see if you survived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went from Pfizer to Moderna. I didn't know if that, anyway. Um, but we've learned a lot, but we've got a lot more to learn, and uh, we really look forward to your leadership in working with the Republicans and Democrats and, and with the Hill as well as with the White House and the administrative uh, executive branch to make sure that we even do better uh, in the future. So thank you for your service. Congressman, thank you. And I'll, I'll just say that— and You can call me Fred, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And, uh, look, I'm eager to partner with everyone who's committed to making sure that the American public has the, what they need to be confident that they'll be protected if and when the next biological threat occurs. Uh, I took this job for no other reason than that I have spent my entire life in public service trying to care for those who relied on us. Uh, you know, it's a great privilege to take care of men and women in uniform. It's an equal privilege in this role to partner with anyone who's willing to partner so that we can address the problems that we've identified over the last three years collaboratively, collegially, and effectively so that we are better prepared. Well, I just might encourage you in the next couple of weeks with the House adjourned that you reach out to the, the leaders of the, the health committees in both the House and the Senate, both Republicans and Democrats, and just 
urge them from the White House perspective, I can't do that for a year until my ethics time has expired here at the end of the calendar year to, to converse with my former colleagues. But it really is important that they make sure that this is on the front burner so that yeah, as yeah, soon as they come back, uh, we can get this thing done. Yeah, we'll do. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, thanks, Fred. Uh, Fred's worth listening to. He was a very uh, productive member of Congress. Um, Dr. Parker, I'm glad to call on you now for a question if you have it. Tip uh, typical, I will say, uh, Paul, of the uh, extraordinary uh, talents and experience we have over here. Dr. Parker is the uh, PhD in DBM. Um, and former government official myself yep. in the military uh, right. as well. And anyway, I just first, I just want to echo the comments um, uh, of thanks for your service and thanks for your willingness to take on this this critical job at this critical moment in time. Um, and uh, I just want to, I just think, you know, coming from DOD, you're the right person at the right time. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And and there'll be a lot of challenges in, in, in the Biodefense Commission. All of us uh, stand ready to to help in any way you can. Um, so, you know, kind of given that, you know, what what do you see or some of how to overcome some of the challenges in the coordination, collaboration, and leadership that are needed uh, that are going to be coming with, um, you know, with, with responsibilities that are going to be spelled out in the coming weeks? Because it's been a perennial problem and challenge of how do you bring everybody together in a coalition of the willing and able? Yeah, well, thank you for the very kind words. And I think I'll say thank you for what's really the hardest question to answer is how do we change the discussion back to what's the best thing for the American people? Uh, you know, I, I think that's where ultimately all of us really want to be. You know, I've yet to meet anyone who says, no, I don't really care about the American people. I, I, I haven't found that person yet. So what... I believe many of us are committed to doing, and what I hope is the case, is that we can have those candid discussions. And partly why I made a point of you know, changing my schedule so I could be here today is I see you all, as you pointed out, as a bipartisan group looking at this issue with, I hope, the opportunity to reach out to members of both parties and reiterate that this is the time for us to come back together and work collaboratively, collegially, on effective solutions, on the improvements that we need to make. I, I'm under no illusions that there's an easy answer to this. But what I can offer is my personal commitment that I will work with everyone who shares my commitment to doing what's best for the American public. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dr. Parker. Timmy, do you have a question? I do. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Friedrich, first, thank you for your service, but also uh, thank you for that little trip down memory lane when you showed all the previous plans that have been done. Uh, as someone who worked on the uh, 06 one in the Bush administration and the 15 one with this commission and commented on some of the others, I am excited that there is so much energy that's put into this, but also somewhat frustrated that this keeps happening so that it almost looks like a rearranging of deck chairs. Can you talk a little bit about specifically how the process within the White House and within an administration might have might be improved or would be improved if we were to face another deadly communicable disease like COVID-19? So I think a couple of things. Uh, you know, as this Office of Pandemic Preparedness stands up, that's something that was not in place at the beginning of the last pandemic. We moved ultimately towards a variety of structures and the COVID response team that's just standing down now 
was a good example specific to COVID of, of how the White House pulled together subject matter experts to then help integrate across the departments and agencies. And as you know, I've now read countless times the legislation that uh, Senator Murray, Senator Burr, and others put together, it's clear that that's what they're driving towards, is a small office, not that duplicates, not that triplicates or complicates, but an office that integrates. And, and I, that's my commitment in all of this, is how can I help work across, help those hardworking people at each of the departments and agencies to collaborate and have a shared understanding of who's doing what and what needs to happen next. I can tell you, you know, I have had nothing but supportive uh, comments from the senior leaders in the White House about their commitment to making this work, which I think is also critical to the success of this office and to our preparedness for the next, next biological event, which hopefully will be many years down the road. I hope that it is many years down the road, and I recognize if it is that we run the risk of forgetting many of the hard lessons that we've learned. And so while we prepare for that next event, hopefully many years away, it's building the shared memory, not just writing a plan, but then exercising that plan and revising at the department and agency levels their individual plans, and then making sure, back to Commissioner Shalala's point, that we've aligned resources with priorities to mitigate gaps as we identify them. And I think that's also an area where we are better positioned today than we were four years ago because we understand the consequences much more clearly. Over a million Americans lost their lives in this pandemic. That we should be able to do better than that as we work and make those decisions on where we invest our next dollar. Uh, so I'm, I'm a perennial optimist. Uh, I, you have to be, uh, uh, I think, in a role like this. <laughs> so I, I'm a Saints fan. I grew up in South Louisiana, and I, I you know, I watched the Saints my entire. Uh, I think it was my first 30 plus years of my life where uh, it was a religious activity to watch the Saints. Uh, it's now a different story, but I, I appreciate your point. But look, I, I really do believe we're in a different place because we have the shared experiences of how difficult this pandemic was. And were there things that we should have done differently? Absolutely, at many levels. But there's an opportunity for us to recognize that now the next step is what do we do differently? How do we, within each department and agency, better integrate efforts and inform the resourcing decisions that are made going forward so that we sustain the benefits of the improvements that have already been made and we make the necessary next improvements? Uh, that's a little bit of a wonky answer and perhaps a bit naive and optimistic. But that's, that's where my heart is on that one right now. Thank you. Uh, thank you. We're just about right on time, which is the way the Defense Department always does it. And uh, I thank you very much uh, for your time and testimony here. Thank all the other witnesses, some of whom are still in the room. It's been a, I think, really constructive day for the commission. Um, my own reaction uh, is listening uh, that the bioterrorist threat is real that the uh, uh, intelligence capacity is critical to seeing that threat coming, perhaps that's obvious, but, uh, and in helping us figure out how to uh, respond to it, and, and that there's a lot of work being done in the federal government and the state and locals uh, to uh, try to in, improve that intelligence uh, capacity and 
sharing, and I must say at the very top of all this, uh, is I take heart from uh, the, the combination of the two offices you now are in charge of and that the president has chosen somebody uh, with your experience and obvious leadership, cap leadership capability to, to run it. So uh, do we have a, a, a threat? We do, but I think we're, uh, we're strengthening our ability to, to detect, detect it and hopefully prevent it. And uh, this commission will do all we can to play a constructive role in all of that, including uh, being supportive of, of your work in uh, any way we can. So I thank you. And uh, that uh, thanks everybody. Incidentally, you commented that the room cleared when you were introduced. So you've been looking at us, unfortunately, uh, while you've been testifying, but the room is filled up during your testimony. So it must be a crowd reaction to uh, what you had to say. Well, thank you all. All right, this, uh, the hearing is adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you.